0: Hello again, friends, and you are my friends, and welcome back to another special edition of the 605 Super Podcast. This, a special look at the life and career of the legendary Pampero Furpo. The audio you just heard was the way 50th State Wrestling began during the peak of Pampero Furpo, or as he was known in Hawaii, the Missing Links Run in the 50th State. We're going to have more classic audio later on here on this show, but what we're going to do today is explore who Pampero Furpo was. We're going to talk to various people who either knew him or got to see him or studied his career, and we're going to, from several vantage points, look at the life and career of Pampero Furpo. Here on this show today, on top of the classic audio, we're going to speak with Japanese wrestling historian Fumi Saito, as well as Hawaiian wrestling historian Bill Atkinson. We're also going to speak with Dave Brzezinski from the Detroit Territory, as well as Jeff Walton from the Los Angeles territory. John Arezzi joins the show to talk a little bit about his memories of Pampero Furpo in New York. We also have Flying Fred Curry, the son of Wild Bull Curry, to share his memories of the Wild Bull of the Pampas. But we're going to kick off this show right now with an extensive conversation I had with the daughter of Pampero Furpo, Mary Fries. We're going to get to know a little bit about the man and the wrestler. Let's go to this conversation right now. I am very happy today to have on the Super Podcast the daughter of Pampero Furpo, Mary Freeze. Mary, thanks for being here today.
1: Hey, Brian. Thanks for having me on the show. I'm a huge fan of the 605 Super Podcast and everything you do. I'm glad to be here.
0: Well, I really appreciate that, and I'm really appreciative that you would give us some time today to talk about your father, who is a legendary figure in wrestling, but a lot of people grew up watching him you actually grew up Furpo. you actually grew up for sure with pampero Furpo as your dad so i want to talk a little bit about that but let's get a little bit of his background info we're going to spend a lot of time today talking about the various places he went to and the various things he did in wrestling but i want to know how he got there i know that he was from argentina and obviously he has an armenian last name and uh martin Kardashian, and i'm sure i'm butchering his name is probably the most famous wrestler from argentina He had those big matches in Luna Park, a place that your father also wrestled. So tell me how your father first got into wrestling. Give me a little bit of his background info, but also, how did Argentina end up with such a large Armenian population?
1: For sure. So yeah, those are great questions. So my father is, um, his father was born in Turkey. His parents were both born in Turkey in around 1910. And at that time, it was not good to be of Armenian descent in Turkey because a very militaristic regime took over. And Armenians, um, right now, there's been news of the Armenian genocide being recognized by Congress. So the Turks perpetrated a genocide. It was the first modern genocide against the Armenians in 1915. And because of that, my, my father's parents lost their parents and family members in the genocide in 1915. And there was a diaspora of Armenians who ended up um, leaving. Many Armenians lived in Turkey and it just wasn't safe. And historians estimate that out of 3 million Armenians, the Turks wiped out over half of the population. And also Adolf Hitler referenced the genocide in Mein Kampf saying that nobody remembers the Armenians, so it kind of became a model for what he did Um, with Jewish people. And a lot of Americans don't know the history because of the politics with Turkey being such a powerful ally with NATO. And Turkish government still doesn't recognize it as a genocide. They call it an uprising, even though Europe recognizes it as a genocide. So my, my grandparents were of Armenian descent. They left Turkey before my father was born and went to Lebanon. And then from Lebanon, they went to Argentina. I'm not exactly sure why. And so my my father was born in Argentina in 1930, and half of our relatives have Spanish names like Juan and Manuel. My dad was Juan, J-U-A-N, but we have the Armenian last name. And so his father, was an Olympic hopeful in boxing in the Olympics in 1936. But because of political, his political status as a refugee, he wasn't able to represent his country. And he ended up not being able to go to the Olympics, but he was a real shooter. And he had 79 amateur fights with 79 wins and knockouts. And my father's father um, kind of got my dad into the sporting life. And that was how it started, because when my grandfather couldn't make the Olympics, He then decided to run his own boxing promotion locally in Argentina as kind of a hobby. He had gotten a job, uh, my grandfather had gotten a job in a factory uh, and he thought, well, on the side when I'm not working, I'll just promote local fights. And so my father was kind of his business partner when my father was a boy and he would get the fighters and time their fights and time the length of the rounds and he would carry water. And so my father grew up around boxing and that was how his interest in the sporting life began.
0: Did your father talk about his childhood? What it was like growing up
1: in Argentina? He did. Yeah, he he grew up pretty tough. The economy wasn't great. And his father and mother had three kids besides my father. And his my father was the oldest and their second child, who was a girl, passed away from health issues and probably just not being able to get the medicine that she needed because of just poverty and lack of technology and where they were living, even though it was Buenos Aires. And so he grew up pretty tough, and he said that he felt like he was in the shadow of his father because his father was a real shooter and very respected as a fighter. And he said he always felt like he was the son of so-and-so, like he wasn't really his own person because his father was such a, a large figure. But at the same time, fighting really intrigued him, and he wanted to be to follow in his father's footsteps. So he told me that as a teenager, he had tried boxing, he said, but I knocked down the opponent and then I ran over to make sure he was okay. And he said, boxing wasn't for me because he, my father had such a big heart. Everyone who knows him just inside the ring, outside the ring, just that they say that, that he was like St. Firpo or Mama Firpo or Papa Firpo because he was a caretaker and a protector. So he said, I just realized boxing wasn't for me. And, um, he was very skilled in soccer. He was skilled in track and field. So he was very athletic. And then the way he got into wrestling was he had to do mandatory military service, even though it was post-World War II. It was like late 1940s, 1949. He had to go into the Argentine Army, and he did about a year and a half of military service. And one of his commanding officers saw our last name, Kochmanian, and thought that my dad was related to a local wrestler in Buenos Aires. And the officer wanted my dad to get him tickets to a wrestling match at Luna Park, which is a big stadium in Buenos Aires. And my dad didn't want to let down the officer and my dad said, oh, okay, I'll, I'll go down and get you tickets. And so on his day off, my dad went to the stadium to try to procure wrestling tickets for his officer. And he ended up talking to the promoter and they liked what they saw with him. And my father was very charming and talked about how his father was a boxer and he was athletic and wanted to work out. and. I just said his star was born. He just started working out with the promoter and the boys. And that was how he got into wrestling, just by happenstance.
0: Do you know, did he ever say if he had seen or watched much wrestling before that point?
1: I don't think he did. I think it was mostly boxing, but he was really athletic. So like I said, he ran track and he played soccer and he was around boxing. But he didn't say that wrestling was really any big part of his life until he went down to the stadium and tried to get those tickets.
0: And what was life like as a wrestler in Argentina during those years?
1: You know, he was, I think, just really working hard to try to establish himself. And he, there were some things in his scrapbook from like the mid-1950s where just trying to come up with a character. And he wrestled as El Russo or Ivan El Terrible wrestled as a Russian. And he just was working with a local talent. And he remembers a promoter saying to him, you really have what it takes. And so you need to establish yourself in Argentina and then get out of here, you know, go to Chile, go to Ecuador, go to Peru and really make your way around South America and the circuit so that then you can go to Mexico and then you can go to the United States. So I think from what he says that even though Argentina wrestling was popular and Luna Park was a beautiful stadium, that from the beginning, he kind of saw it as a stepping stone to achieving his dream, which was coming to the United States. That was his dream since he was a little boy.
0: And, of course, that is what he would end up doing. He would go to Mexico and fairly quickly go from Mexico into the United States right into Texas. Did he talk about that period in his life, coming to Mexico and then getting into the United States?
1: Yeah, he did. So firstly, it was just such a cool period in history. He said that when he traveled around South America, he stayed at hotels where the Perones were staying, and he kind of crossed paths with them. And that's just such an interesting time to be alive. And he also procured chimu, which was the shrunken head that he used in the ring. He told me that he got it from a tribal leader in Ecuador, and it was a real shrunken head that was given to him by a tribesman as a sign of respect that he admired my father's charisma and endurance and leadership. And he gave my my father this real shrunken head that he picked up in Ecuador and so it was and my dad called it chimu because he said that was the name for the tribe's god of good luck and he kept that with him and so he had so many interesting travels around South America and my father grew up speaking armenian because that's his ethnicity and he spoke spanish because that's in Argentina and then as he traveled he picked up portuguese he picked up italian and he came by the time he came to the United States english was his fifth language that he spoke he just had a talent for picking up languages. And I think that really helped him on his travels too, because he was able just to get over with people wherever he went and speak in their native tongue in Mexico. And so once he arrived in Mexico, he worked with all the popular wrestlers like El Santo, El Medico, Gori Guerrero, just all of those names in Mexico, again, trying to then make a name for himself so he could come up to Houston. And then Houston was the next step after wrestling in Mexico. So I think my dad always had a real soft spot for Latino wrestlers like Pedro Morales later in his career. And I think that just came from, um, you know, just growing up in Argentina and just being part of that Latin culture and speaking Spanish. And I think he felt like in Mexico, in a lot of ways, he was among friends because he understood the language and he understood the culture. But again, it was a stepping stone for him to come to Texas. And he told me that it took him six years from when he left home. He said he left home in Argentina. Then he started traveling through South America wrestling. And he said he told his mother I'm going to come back for you, and I'm going to send for you to come to America. And it took him six years to accomplish that. And it was just the thing in his life that he was the most proud. You know,
0: one of the things you just talked about was him learning different languages. And that's something that various people I've interviewed about your father have brought up. Some say he knew five languages, some say six, some say
1: seven. How many languages did he actually know? He spoke, I'd have to count, Spanish, Armenian, Italian, Portuguese, French. English, Russian, and then he even spoke Japanese conversationally and he understood he understood Turkish and he understood Greek. His parents also, his father was multilingual. His father spoke Spanish, Armenian, English, Turkish, and Greek. And so he just came from this very rich background of all these different cultures. So I would say he spoke seven languages fluently and then he was conversant in different he was conversant in different languages, and it just gave people such a thrill to be able to talk in their native language wherever he went. He just made a real effort to connect with people, and it was just a joy for me as a child to see that, that he could speak to people in so many different ways. And they just They would literally just hug him because they felt so happy hearing somebody trying to communicate with them in their own tongue. It was really cool.
0: We'll get back to his wrestling career in a second, but the topic of how many languages he spoke makes me wonder about his actual educational background. Did he go to school? How much school did he actually go to? And was he a reader? Was he someone who would read a book?
1: Yeah, he was. He told me when I was growing up, he said, do you know who your best friends are? And I said, yeah, Monica and Evelyn. He said, no, your best friends are classic books. (laughs) And I would just start laughing. And he said, classic books, because you can read them and they have wisdom for you and you can put them away and come back to them. And he was a real... He, well, he finished high school and then his sisters became academics. One of them became an attorney in Argentina and the other one went into finance. He had two surviving sisters who are still alive at 85 and 83 years old and living here in San Jose where my dad was living. Um, before he passed but he he said that he made a decision to go toward the sporting life so he didn't do any post secondary education and there are some things reported like he had taught classes in Ohio in a college or university he never did that so he just finished high school and then he got his education just by traveling the world but he loved Marcus Aurelius particularly he loved reading philosophy he was religious so he loved to read the bible he listened to classical music he was a real interesting renaissance man apart from that wild persona that he had in the ring he was very uh, learned if not with a formal education
0: the late 50s was a very interesting period of time for mexican wrestling as well as wrestling in the state of texas did your father ever talk to you about any of the characters that were around whether it be el santo or the promoters let's say in houston Morris siegel what did he say about the characters hate to use the word characters, but I will. But the characters he was around in the wrestling business during these years where he finally got into America.
1: Well he said he had great respect for El Santo and he just told me he was untouchable. Those were his words. He said he's untouchable and just had great respect for El Santo. Gory Guerrero was another person that he enjoyed working with. And he particularly became very good friends with Don Leo Jonathan, who was his first opponent in nineteen fifty seven in Houston. He referred to Morris Siegel and Paul Bosch also is just very good businessmen. They were the promoters that he worked with in Texas. And he generally just in those early years was trying to establish himself and trying to learn the game and just kind of tried to straddle that line between being valuable to the promoter, but also making sure that he stood up for himself and got a fair payday. And it was especially tricky for him. He said he had to use all of his diplomacy because he didn't know the language and he didn't know American culture. And so what he said was that he idolized Antonina Rocca as a boy and Rocca was probably 10 years older than my dad. And he said that gave him his entree into the United States because Raqqa had come in through Texas and then gone to New York. And Raqqa had put the word in for my dad, who also had found success on his own in Mexico. But Raqqa vouched for my dad. And I think that helped him get into Houston. And then he worked programs with Raqqa in New York in 1960. And uh, I, so he really respected Raqqa a lot as well.
0: And of course, he would not yet be Pamparo Furpo in Texas. When he gets to New York, he becomes Pamparo Furpo, But he was Ivan the Terrible. In Houston, Texas, and throughout Texas. Did he ever talk about that persona, Ivan the Terrible?
1: I think it was just a natural thing for him in that era. You either, if you were going to be a heel, you either were Japanese, you were a Nazi, or you were a Russian. And he just looked the part of the Russian, and he spoke the language. And I think it was just a natural character. But he, I've told this story before it's in the press about how Jack Dempsey was the one who christened him so I can tell that story if you're interested in me telling yes, it if please. you think the audience doesn't know. So my dad yes yeah, so my dad came from Argentina and one of his first and his first match in the United States with Don Leo Jonathan Jack Dempsey was a celebrity referee very early in my father's career and my dad was wrestling as Ivan the Terrible and my dad said that other people had that same gimmick and so it wasn't necessarily Something that would make him unique, because that Russian villain, Rasputin, or Ivan the Terrible, was uh, something other people were using, and so he became very good friends with Jack Dempsey, from pretty much from the moment that they met. And when Jack Dempsey was officiating my father, he said, "You you work, you fight so hard, and you have so much charisma." He said, "You should bill yourself as the son of Luis on Helferpo." And Dempsey. Obviously, being the world heavyweight champion in the 1920s was still a major celebrity. And people remember the historic fight between Dempsey and Luis Ángel Fripo, who knocked Dempsey out of the ring. And so Dempsey thought that would be a really great thing for my dad to be billed as because it would catch the attention of fans who remember this boxer from Argentina. Now here's his son, his kayfabe son coming in, but people thought it was real. And my dad said that appealed to him also because of his father's boxing background. He said, Well, my father was a real shooter. And he said, I could see that. Like I'm the son of a boxer because. Because he really was. And so my dad took that name, uh, Furpo, and the Wild Bull of the Pampas, which was Luis Ángel Furpo's nickname. And then a Pompero is a big hurricane that just plows through the Pampas and knocks everything over. And so Pompero, Furpo, and Furpo because he was supposed to be the son of Luis Furpo, and a Pompero because he just came in like a hurricane and just knocked everything over and so Dempsey suggested that nickname and that was where he when he started using it. And it at first it kind of became different incarnations in his cards. Sometimes he was billed as Ivan Furpo. And so he in the beginning of his career, Ivan the Terrible. And then by probably nineteen sixty, sixty one, he had transitioned over to Furpo. And then of course in Hawaii he was the missing link.
0: Well we'll certainly talk a little bit about that in a moment, but he would go to New York, he would be here for a little while. And then it's really after that that I feel like Pampero Firpo really emerges as a player in the wrestling business. He's such a memorable name, such a memorable look, such a memorable promo. When did he first start feeling comfortable with the talking? Did he ever talk to you about that?
1: I think he is just a talker from day one. I think that was probably the thing that he felt most comfortable with, even if English wasn't his native language. He just was a natural communicator. He found a way to get his point across. And he, I I think, always felt comfortable with that. I think that was just a big part of his character and who he was. And I think that just developed as he continued wrestling in the United States. And I don't think it was ever an issue for him. I think he just loved to talk, like I do. And so he just (laughs) hit the ground running. And um, Jan obviously was was known for that and his influence on Randy Savage and other people in the business from his talking. And of course, the expression.
0: Oh, yeah! That would end up being adopted by Randy Savage and turned into his own, and I apologize to everyone for my awful version of that that I just did. Did he ever explain where that came from, or was it just something that he threw into a promo one day and stuck with it? Where did that catchphrase come from?
1: Well, first, I thought your impression was perfect. I thought it was great. Although I have to say that Cornette, I have to say Jim does an amazing Randy Savage, oh, yeah. And even he does a good one of my dad. So anyway, I thought it was great. Um, he never mentioned where he came up with, oh, yeah, but it almost, I think he he just did it as an affirmation of what he was saying because he started he would use that a lot of times at the end of his promo and then just walk off or a bit he even kind of said it in the middle of his promo and it was almost just kind of an intensifier an emphasis of what he had said previously and there's an article somebody wrote about him Probably in the 1960s, and it said that his English—it said his broken English is a fascinating mix of ten-dollar phrases and malapropisms and just <laughs> different, like—and it's kind of how it was. I think he just like got onto that, like, oh yeah, that's what I'm going going to do to you, and it just became something. It was um because English again was his fifth language. I think that that catchphrase helped him maybe fill in the the pieces or fill in the spaces, and that guttural roar and something he became known for but he never really mentioned where that where he how, where or how he invented that it just he used it and then it just seemed to get over and it it grew
0: you mentioned earlier how he found chimu and that's another one of the things that people talk about when they talk about his promos they remember when he would have his shrunken head chimu Was it always the same shrunken head throughout his career? And whatever happened to Chimu?
1: Yes. Okay, so this is a really great story. This is a great story. So I was fascinated with my dad's wrestling career ever since I was a little girl. And my brother was born in 1970. My sister was born in 1973. And I was born in 1975. And I was born in California. So by the time I was five years old, six years old, my dad was pretty much hanging up his wrestling boots except for a couple of comeback matches in the mid-80s. And so I remember being... In middle school or the end of elementary school, and my father kept these scrapbooks and I put those on Twitter, if I could give a plug. My Twitter is at p one the numeral one. And I go through the scrapbooks and I take pictures of all of the memorabilia and I post them. And I remember looking through these when I was younger. And I'd asked my dad, I said, where is Chimu? I want to see Chimu. And my dad would never really talk about it. So I'd asked my mom and my mom, my parents divorced when I was 10 and I'd asked my mom about it. I said, what happened to Chimu? And she said, well, I think your dad, when he stopped wrestling, had Chimu made into jewelry. And I thought, well, that's interesting. And I met, do you know where the jewelry is? And nobody knew where it was. So this is just great. Um, My sister, Julie, who was ill and passed away in 2016, unfortunately, she had cancer as a child and was given chemotherapy in the 1970s and it damaged her heart and caused heart failure. So we lost my sister in 2016 and she and my dad and all all of us, my older brother, my sister and me were all very close with my father. It was a huge loss for our family. Um, and at the time that she was very ill toward the end of her life, my brother had gotten some of my dad's belongings and some of my sister's, and he was organizing them. And my dad had this Halliburton suitcase with his wrestling gear in it. And my brother had found it and gone through it. and There was a ring jacket and boots and things like he had kind of the suitcase packed up, like he was ready to go to a wrestling show. And so when my sister was in the hospital, she was sleeping, and my brother and I went to go visit her. And suddenly my brother pulls Chimu out of his blue jeans pockets, like his front pocket. And he said, look what I found. It's Chimu. (laughs) And he pulls it out and he put it right in my face. It's about the size of like a chicken leg, like a drumstick. And he just held it and just put it like two inches from my face. And I, it's just something that makes you scream. I mean, it looks like it's a, it, it looks like something you'd get from the Halloween spirit store, but it's a legit shrunken head. It's got hair on it and kind of like stitched up mouth. And it was just so I, it was, my brother used to do that when we were little, he'd bring home garter snakes and pull them out of his pocket or crawdads. And so here we are in our forties and he, I found Chimu and he pulled it out of his pocket and just puts it in my face. So my dad had kept Chimu, He was not made into jewelry and he had him in a velvet bag and he kept him in his suitcase. And that was where he where he stays. He's still in his velvet bag in the Halliburton suitcase, safe and sound. Also, you still have Chimu to this day. We, have, yeah, Chimu is a family member. He's a, a family <laughs> treasure. He's <laughs> that's wonderful. he stays in he stays in the suitcase. And I don't know, honestly, Brian. I it's an eerie looking talisman. And Mike Mooneyham called it a macabre oddity. And I said that's perfect. Like he's, I don't know. I tried to ask my dad. Was this like a, a family member of the tribesmen who gave it to you? Was it a political enemy? was it how did this shrunken head come to be and he never ever told me he just said the leader was impressed with me and gave me this as a gift and a sign of respect So i mean that was one of my questions as far as you know this wasn't a prop this was a legitimate shrunken head it's a real shrunken head. And then my dad worked it into his promos like you are, you know, his opponent was going to be next and he was going to shrink his opponent's head. And he was even <laughs> billed, he was even billed at some parts in his career as the Argentine head shrinker, the head shrinker from the island of Borneo in certain magazines and articles, they would work Chimu into kind of my dad's character and his lore, but it was a real, it's a real shrunken head and, and we still have it. That's terrific that you have that. <laughs> Terrific, but it's a little creepy. So he stays in the velvet bag <laughs> the velvet at bag. my brother's house, safe and sound.
0: <laughs> when your father went to work in the AWA, when he went to work for Vern Gagne, was that something he liked? Obviously, weather-wise, it was very different than what he was accustomed to. But also, did he enjoy working in the Midwest for Vern Gagne?
1: He did. He uh, he liked Vern Gagne a lot. He really respected Vern. And when my parents my my mom is from milwaukee she's a midwestern girl and he met my mom actually at a wrestling match in milwaukee she was a fan of his and so he enjoyed working detroit with for the chic he enjoyed working awa for Vern. he liked the midwest but he wanted a temperate climate to live in so when my brother started kindergarten in 1975 my parents bought their first house in california and so previous to that they would just kind of have this itinerant lifestyle where he would work for Vern maybe for a year or two and have an apartment or rent it, rent something in Michigan or Minneapolis. And they lived kind of this itinerant uh, lifestyle in the Midwest and in different territories where he worked until they settled with their home base in California. And he did like working for Vern. He had an enormous respect for Vern for Larry Hennig, for The Crusher. He was really fond of them as people and as opponents for Dick the Bruiser. It was funny, too, because sometimes the wrestlers would call my house when I was like seven years old, eight years old, and they had these real gravelly voices. They would ask for FERP, and it would kind of scare me. And I remember looking at my dad's paperwork, and he had a lot of those people on his Christmas card list. Like He would exchange Christmas cards with Bulldog Don Kent and the Hennigs and the Bashans <laughs> and the Crusher. And so I thought, well, that's very cordial. They're sending each other Christmas cards. and it, uh, So he He really did have a lot of affection for him. And toward the end of his life, it was our Sunday ritual. I would pick up my dad. He was living in assisted living about 15 minutes from my house, and I would bring him over every Sunday. And he always wanted to watch the classic wrestling on YouTube, and Luthez was his favorite. So he particularly loved Luthez versus Ganya from the Chicago Amphitheater. It's one of his favorite matches, and he always loved watching Vern wrestle. He said Vern was like a real shooter and very talented.
0: Is that what the other wrestlers called him, FERP?
1: They called him FERP. Yeah, that's what they
0: called him. Obviously, the exact opposite of the Midwest weather would be the beautiful weather in Hawaii. And Hawaii is someplace where he left a major legacy. He was one of the biggest stars on 50th State Wrestling. People still talk about those interviews because those interviews, they had more time there than anywhere else. Did your father talk much about Hawaii? Did he talk much about becoming the missing link for Lord James Blears and Ed Francis?
1: Oh, absolutely. So Hawaii was his favorite place to wrestle, was his favorite place. And I learned so much from listening to you and to Jim and to your shows about how Hawaii was a stopping ground. So from the home base in California, he would wrestle in Hawaii and then go to Japan and then back to Hawaii and back to California. And he loved Hawaii. He and my mom lived on the island in 1969 and were married in Honolulu. James Blair's was at his wedding. And he had a lot of respect for Ed Francis as well. And he just absolutely loved Hawaii. That was his favorite place to work. And I remember even as an adult, I got married in Hawaii in 2003. My dad was 73 and we got married in Maui and people around the island were calling out to him and talking to him that they had recognized him and almost in tears hugging him. Then, you know, this was in 2003, like the impression that he had made and he had such a love for the Hawaiian people. He was very close to Peter Maivia and To Johnson. Um, My dad was very close to that family and um, Peter Maivia and Nef Maiava and the Hawaiians. And I think one of the reasons I asked him if he liked working face or heel, and he kind of chuckled and said, of course, I liked working heel. But in Hawaii, he was such a baby face. And I have friends on the island who say your father was just the best and the most popular and we would imitate him. And I think he got a real kick out of Hawaii because he worked as a baby face and people just loved him wherever he went.
0: Did he ever talk about his thoughts about being rechristened the missing link in Hawaii?
1: You know, I didn't even know where that came from. And at my father's funeral, Dave Meltzer was there. He lives in San Jose, and I invited him to attend. And he and his colleague, Garrett Gonzalez, attended. And I was really pleased that they came to honor and pay respect to my father. And Dave had said that Ed Francis thought Pompero Furpo was a lousy name, and they wanted to just change it. And I think it was Ed Francis who came up with the missing link, according to Dave. And Dave had interviewed my father at different times in his career. So I never had heard that story, but I believe what he said, and it sounds like that would be something accurate. And people would call... Peter Maivia the chief, and they would call Nefmayava the prince, and then they would call my father the link. And it, the three of them often worked together and, and hung out together outside of the ring.
0: Did your father ever talk about Ripper Collins or Johnny Barron?
1: He did. He, I think he more considered them kind of showmen type wrestlers. And he had just, um, he, he talked briefly about them. Like he didn't ever say any, that he had heat with anybody that he worked with. And I just would show him pictures of Johnny Brand and he had the big cigar out of his, sticking out of his mouth when he worked in Hawaii. My dad would just kind of chuckle and say he was a real showman. <laughs> and the same thing with Ripper Collins, that he was a real showman. And I have a funny Hawaii story about Hawaii Five O that I could tell you. Yeah, please. Okay, good. So, so I love I love telling stories about my dad. So, um my mom remembered that Hawaii 50 was starring Jack Lord. It was a crime detective series and it ran from 1968 to 1980 and it was filmed on location in Honolulu and my father lived there and was wrestling and like I said was a big star on the island. So, he had gotten recruited to be in an episode of Hawaii 50 and he had gone down to meet with the writers and the director and the producer and they had given my dad a script and what was supposed to happen was that my dad was supposed to be in a building menacing some helpless citizens and assaulting them and then some shadowy villain and he was beating up on these helpless people and then Jack Lord was supposed to come in And save the day and then interfere with my father and save the people. And so my dad had read that script and he did not want to have that be the way the show went. So my father decided to rewrite the script because this is just not acceptable to him that this is how it's going to go. So he went to talk to the writer and he started to explain to them... What's going to happen is that these innocent, helpless citizens will be assaulted in a building by somebody else. And then he said, I will suddenly appear in the doorframe, like block the doorframe with his big, stocky physique. And he said "The people assaulting them will turn their head and look at me. I'll be in the doorframe and they'll yell, run for your lives. It's the missing link. And then he would say, oh, yeah, and then the people assaulting these victims would take off in fear. My dad would go save the day, be the hero, help soothe the assaulted the people who are being assaulted. And then Jack Lord would come in and thank my dad and say, nobody else could have saved these people except for the missing link. You're the true hero. You saved the day. So my dad <laughs> is explaining this to the writer and the director and the, you know, he's going to be the main event if he's going to be in the show at all. And so the, the director and was just kind of listening to him somewhat impassively. And, you know, writers are when you interfere with their script. And they said, well, kind of sighed and said, thank you, Mr. Link, very much for this feedback. But if you're going to be in the show, you have to stick to the script. And so my dad pretty much said, well, thank you for the opportunity. And I'm not interested and just left the meeting and never appeared in the show. It's a great story, though. It's a great story. I said, if he's, not, if he's not the main event, he's not going to be saving the day he wasn't interested. And I think that also speaks to his protecting of the business, because like I said before, I really didn't know all that much about his, some of the comings and goings in his career. I think I told you this before, how I I really learned by listening to you and listening to Jim Cornette, listening to Dave and listening to these wonderful historians about his career, because he didn't talk much about it. He just called it his professional ethic. And he was of that era where you just protected the business. When he was a heel, he carried a gun. He couldn't be seen with the baby faces. It was a separate locker room. So I'm sure that not only just wanting to be the star of the show, he was also wanting to protect his character, that he's not going to appear in a show as a villain because he's known as a baby face. And so he wanted to make sure that wherever he was represented, he was kayfabe the way that he was in wrestling with his character. And so I really respected that about him, that he had no knowledge of shoot interviews. He had no knowledge of people exposing their own personal business. And so to the very end, he just... You know, went to the grave with a lot of people's secrets. And he really, he, he said it was respect for the business. It was her professional ethic. And if people, if my friends or people would ask him, well, is it fake? You know, he'd say, that's a very touchy word with me. And he wouldn't ever expose anything about wrestling, even to his own family.
0: What do you know about your father's stomach injury in Hawaii, which obviously would impact the rest of his career and the way he was able to work in the ring?
1: So I'd asked my mom about that, and Lanny Pasco does a great Im- impression of my dad, and we love the Pasco family, Lanny and Randy and Judy and Angelo, and so Lanny always says, don't touch me in my stomach or I will die. You know, so he, my mom said that she thinks it was some kind of maybe diverticulitis or some kind of intestine perforation. Like, I don't know if she's even really sure what happened. And I just know he was in the hospital in Hawaii and just had this internal intestinal injury. And I think in the wrestling magazines, they kayfabe to make a story up, like he was assaulted in a riot and got stabbed by somebody in the crowd. And like I said, sometimes I don't even know what's real or what's imagined. <laughs> so I remember I talked to uh, Joanne Dusick, who's the daughter of Omaha promoter, Joe Dusick, and she's a close friend of my father's. And I said, does that sound right to you? Did he get stabbed in Omaha? Is that why his stomach was injured? And she said, no, no, that really didn't happen. So as far as I know, it was an internal injury that had to do that didn't have anything to do with um, necessarily being injured in the wrestling ring. But even I don't know the real story.
0: Yeah, because I've heard various different stories from him getting stabbed to him getting injured in a match with Johnny Barron. I'm not exactly sure.
1: I'm not either. And I'm his daughter. And I, I've i heard that Johnny Bren's the same way. Um, he had just a really, really visible scar. It was like a super ugly, just real visible scar all from like his sternum, just past his belly button, just like, like somebody had just flayed him open. He had this real big scar there. And um, yeah, I, I wish I knew more of it too. He just didn't didn't talk about it.
0: So while he's working in Hawaii, he still has a place on the mainland? Did your father and your mother... Have a headquarters in the I
1: don't think they bought their house until like early nineteen seventies. And so when he came through the United States in nineteen fifty seven, he had sent for his family, which at the time were his two parents And his two younger sisters who were living in Buenos Aires and he brought them across the border in a country squire station wagon. And it was like the American dream. He established his family in the United States. And so his sisters and his parents were living in San Jose, which is where I was born and raised and where we still live and my dad and my brother. His sisters, his his parents passed away here. So everyone still lives in San Jose, but he didn't buy his house until probably the early 70s. So I think what was happening was he was either renting a place or maybe staying with his parents in between the traveling. And then my mom recalls that when my brother started kindergarten in 1975, she said, we really just have to... Choose a place because we can't be pulling him out of school just to travel and um, relocate. So I think my brother was in school for a while in Michigan or school for a while in Minnesota. But my mom said like we really need to settle in California. And then once he started going to school, she pretty much stayed in California, and my dad would go on the road and then would come back to the house that they owned.
0: Well, that's one of the things. Even when he was main eventing in Detroit first as a heel and then as a babyface he was still going into New York. He was still going into Los Angeles. He was someone who was always on the move, even though he had a main territory that he worked in. He
1: still was main eventing in various different places. Yeah, for sure. And I had mentioned Lanny Puffo. I want to tell one more story about Buddy Rogers with my dad, because I was talking about how, my dad was so tight-lipped about the professional ethic of his business and wouldn't really say anything. And so when my dad, my dad was born in 1930. And so, like I said, I would bring my dad over every Sunday and I have two children who are his only grandchildren. My son, Tommy is 12. My daughter, Cindy is nine. And since they've been babies, I would, I'd bring my dad over. He would drive over to the house when the kids were born and spend time with the grandchildren and just kind of while away the afternoon watching the kids playing with our friends and I he would sit at my dining room table and I would put wrestling for him on YouTube and we would I would do chores and laundry and cook and we'd have dinner together And so he was particularly interested in a Luthez match with Buddy Rogers. And I'd asked my dad about Buddy Rogers. He was such a showman. I enjoyed watching the match as well. And it was such a different character for 1960 with that nature boy and um, almost kind of like a gorgeous George. But I could tell the fans were hostile to him and the announcers were hostile toward Buddy Rogers. And he seemed so arrogant and flamboyant. And I'd asked my dad, I said, tell me about Buddy Rogers. And he said, well, Buddy Rogers was a real showman. He said he was a real professional and he was a real showman. And he'd make my dad would, make a distinction between that and say somebody like Vern Gagne or the Iron Sheik, who he said, well, he was a real shooter, like he was a real legit shooter. Danny Hodge, he was a real shooter. Luthez, he's a real shooter. But with Buddy Rogers, he'd say, well, he was a real showman. And I said, well, tell me about him. And all he would say is he'd say, Buddy knew that I had his back and I didn't know what that meant. And so Tim Hornbaker, who wrote Death of the Territories, I know you've mentioned that book. And if anybody listening hasn't read it, It's a great book. Tim Hornbaker is writing a book right now on Buddy Rogers. And so Tim had asked me through Twitter, he said, does your dad have any stories about Buddy Rogers? And I said, well, all he would tell me is that Buddy knew he had his back. And my dad and Buddy wrestled against each other and worked programs in different places, including New York. And I said, he just won't really fill in the story. So I asked Lanny Poffo, who's just the wrestling genius and knows everything. And so the story that Lanny told me was that Buddy and my dad were in St. Louis and Buddy had provoked hostility from the crowd like he does. And he came to the ring and was being flamboyant and arrogant. And as Lanny and Tim Hornbaker both said, Buddy had a lot of heat backstage with the boys because he was just difficult and generally unlikable. And he had his clique of people, but he had kind of alienated the dressing room. And so my dad kind of tried to stay out of those political clique type things and tried to be diplomatic and kind of stay out of the politics and just kind of do his own thing. And I think my dad maybe got away with that a little bit more because he wasn't an American. He was kind of a foreigner anyway. And I think that kind of helped my dad stay out of maybe some of the drama that was happening backstage. So. Buddy had finished his match. And as he was walking back to the dressing room in St. Louis, a fan came out of nowhere and took a glass bottle and smashed it over Buddy's head and really painful injury. And he kind of staggered back to the dressing room and he had shards of glass in his scalp and he was bleeding profusely. And when Buddy came back to the dressing room, none of the other boys would help him. And so my dad just seeing him in this sorry state and just feeling this human sympathy for him, took his comb out of his travel bag and just very gently started combing the shards of glass out of Buddy's scalp and soothing him and talking to him. And Lanny imitates him and he says, I'm not a medical professional Buddy, but I think you might need to get this looked at. It might need some stitches. And so um, it just speaks to his kind heart. And that's something he's so kind. Even when he was in his assisted living facility, he would walk through the hallways and he would make sure he'd open the doors for people. And when he was in the dining hall, he would pour people water and make sure that they had silverware and that they were eating enough. And he was just the caretaker. And one of his, when I was having Thanksgiving dinner with him at his facility, a couple of years ago, a woman approached me and she looked to be in her seventies. And I assumed that she was a resident the time my dad was 87. And she said, I just want to say what a gentleman your father is. I said, thank you. That's very sweet. And she said, he takes such good care of my mother. And he, she said that, her mother was 102 and living in the community. And she said, your father always makes sure that she's seated and that she's taken care of and has what she needs. And she said, your father is just such a gentleman. And then a man who was eating at the table over overheard us. And he said, oh, yes, he said, that's very true your father is just so kind to everyone. He said, plus he's so sharply dressed. He said, your father always, he said, look at him. He has that button down shirt on and the tie and the sport coat. And he really was, he always was impeccably groomed. He just looked like the champ, like wearing a suit and a tie. And even when I brought him, I used to bring him to show and tell when I was like third grade, I would just bring him as the guest speaker, you know, here's my dad. And he would come wearing a suit and just always look so sharply dressed. And so the man next to me was admiring his fashion and said, he just looks so good. And he said, what kind of industry was your dad in? Where did he work? Was he a clothing designer or did he work in the fashion industry? (laughs) I just started laughing. But um, I... You know, he just, he was so kind hearted. And back to Lanny Paffo, he's a good family friend. And he said the same thing. He said, your dad, he said, your dad and my dad, Angelo Paffo, he said they had great respect and affection for each other because they were just these old school guys, you know, Italian for Angelo Paffo and my dad being Armenian. And there are so many Italians who live in Argentina and they just were so old school and just so respectful of people and just had such kind hearts. And Lanny told me that he had heard the Buddy Rogers story, along with many other stories from my father with when he went Lanny was riding with Angelo and my father and just making towns in the Midwest. And he said, your dad just left to talk. And then he and my dad would speak in Italian. And he said that was where he heard the Buddy Rogers story. So he's been a great source of information for me as I try to piece together these things of my father's career.
0: Where do you think it came from, the desire to always be dressed impeccably? Obviously, he grew up very poor. When do you think it started yeah. and where do you think it comes from? Like Mentally, what do you think was going through his mind when he dressed himself?
1: I think he just is a vain creature like I am. I always have to be nicely dressed. I always have to have my makeup on and my hair clothed. I think that's just part of who he is. I think it was a personal pride for him that he always was just very sharp looking. And I think he also really respected people like Luthez who when he was the champ, he looked like the champ and he dressed the part and he was always carried himself with dignity and with professionalism. And I think that my dad, it reminds me of the adage of dress for the job you want, not the job that you have. And so I think that was part of it too, that he just sensed that he had a greater destiny and he was striving to always improve himself personally. And if he looked the part, if he looked like the champ, if he dressed in a suit, if he carried himself well, if he was kind to people, if he was well-spoken, if he was diplomatic, I think he saw those things as keys to success.
0: I want to ask you about your father in Detroit, but before I get there, did he ever talk to you about Vince McMahon Sr.? And in general, what promoters were his favorite promoters?
1: Yes. So he, his favorite promoters were Joe Dusick in Omaha, Nebraska. And Joe Dusick's wife is named Anne, And Joe and Anne had one child who's a daughter named Joanne. And she's turning 81 this year and lives in Omaha. And she's still a family friend. She's kind of like a grandmother to me. And we made weekly phone calls to Joanne. And see how she's doing because both of her parents have passed away. So he he really had great respect for the Dusics and not just Joe, but the rest of the Riot Squad like Emil and Ernie and Rudy. And I think that early on, the Dusics in Nebraska in the 1950s and 60s helped my dad with his career and helped him acclimate to American culture. And he said those he said Joe Dusick was just an honest, honest person, which you don't hear sometimes about promoters, especially from the boys. So he always just had great reverence and respect for Joe Dusick. And he also had a Jim Barnett impression and he would imitate Jim Barnett talking to Nick, Nick Bockwinkle. He'd go, Nicky, my boy, he just had, everyone has a Jim Barnett impression. So he said that he loved working for Jim Barnett in Australia because he said Jim Barnett was a good businessman and he had money and he said he always knew he was going to get a good payday with Jim Barnett. So he, he really respected Jim Barnett as a promoter. And he also, Talked about Morris Siegel and Paul Bosch as being good businessmen. Um, he didn't talk much about Vince Senior, but I know that he, when he was brought in with Vince Senior to work programs with Pedro and Bruno, that he respected. It sounded like Vince Senior gave my dad some creative license for how to work the match and how to get over as a heel and how to, um, you know, beat up on Pedro or get some heat by beating up on Bruno when as a heel with the audience. And my dad talks about like the little old ladies just, you know, going crazy and trying to hit him and hurt him while he's beating up the champion. And so I think he felt that Vince Sr. gave him that creative license to figure out how to promote his character.
0: Detroit is one of the places where your father is most closely associated. I think there's various different places where he would be on the Mount Rushmore. Hawaii for certain, probably Northern California, and Detroit. What did he tell you about Detroit? Did he enjoy working for the Sheik? And in general, a lot of these guys who have Middle Eastern backgrounds, did they all stick together? Did he ever talk about that, whether it was Wild Bull Curry, who was Lebanese, or the Sheik, or, of course, your father, or anyone else? What was it like working for the Sheik? And then did he feel a kinship with other guys of Middle Eastern descent?
1: Yeah, for sure. For sure he did, and especially I'd mentioned before with the Hispanic People like Pedro Morales, he loved he always said he's such a good kid. Like he loved Pedro and he loves hearing Pedro speak in Spanish for his promos and things like that. So, you know, wrestlers who spoke Spanish and were either like Mexican or Dominican or Puerto Rican, like that really was over with my dad. And then like you said, people like the Curries who are Lebanese, he really, really liked Bull Curry and Fred Curry. And he always chuckles and said, Well, Freddie, Freddie was a really good kid. Like he really like that family. And I think for a number of years, he had a good working relationship with the Sheik. And I think they respected each other as professionals, but there was some falling out that the two of them had. And it was probably over a payday uh, where my father felt shorted or whatever it was. And I, you know, he spoke favorably of the Sheik and his wife, I think his wife was named Joyce and would talk about like spending time with them outside the ring. But I think at some point they had some kind of a falling out and it wasn't, It wasn't anything that he really talked about, but I think that that maybe kind of tempered their friendship in later years. But I I know that there was a lot of friendship there and that they got along well for a lot of their career. And um, yeah.
0: Did he get along with Roy Shire? And was he happy working in the San Jose area considering and San Francisco area considering his family
1: was there? Yeah, I think that was great because he was local and he didn't have to get on a plane or drive hours and hours to make a town. So that was wonderful. And I know Dave Meltzer talks a lot about when Dave came to San Jose as a child and how wrestling was on KTBU. And in fact, my sister and my brother who are a little older than I am, particularly remember also kids on the playground saying, I saw Julian John's dad on TV yesterday. So it was really cool for our family because he was this local celebrity and he was we were in the Bay Area while he was doing that. So he really liked working in the Bay Area and then he also crossed paths again with Peter Maivia. He really liked Pepper Gomez and he had great respect for Ray Stevens. Ray Stevens was one of his favorite people. And he, whenever I would show him, when he'd come over on Sundays, we sometimes would watch Bobby Heenan doing promos with Nick Balklinkel and Ray Stevens for the AWA. And my dad would just laugh and laugh. And he would just go, Bobby's such a good talker. And he said, Ray was so professional. And those were some of the people he crossed paths with in the Bay Area. So I, I know that he really, really liked working there, but he didn't say much about Shire.
0: What about Japan? I know that you must get a kick out of seeing pictures of your dad managing the convict. Over in Japan, but did he ever talk about Japan? He did four tours. He did,
1: yeah. He loved Japan, and I, I appreciate you having Fumi on the show. I love hearing Fumi talk about Japan, and he absolutely loved Japan. He loved the culture. In fact, his uh, primary care physician, we have an HMO called Kaiser, and my dad would just do annual checkups, and his doctor was a man in his fifties who was Japanese, and that was totally over with my dad. He just had like a love for Japanese people, <laughs> and he would speak he'd speak some of his Japanese phrases to him, and he would I would show him some of the pictures. From my dad from Japan and he just had such, he loved the culture and particularly the filial aspects of the sons and daughters just showing deference to their parents and to elder people because that was always how he was with his own parents and the family respect. And he loved the culture. He loved going to Japan. He had beautiful clothing made. Like we talked about his tailoring, just beautiful like silk shirts and one of a kind that he still had in his collection in his closet, like monogram things. And he just loved working there. He absolutely loved it. And so he would bring us, my sister and me, bring us dolls back from Japan. And that was so cool, little souvenirs and things from all over. So that was something he loved going there. He had the Japanese airline bags and he'd have like a New Japan or all Japan jackets and things like that. And he really he also really liked Baba and Inoki both of them and there's some video I put up on YouTube of my dad at Cauliflower Alley Club talking to Inoki and he had great relationships with Baba with Inoki. And just, he loved being over there. That was a real thrill for him. And he wrestled in 21 different countries across five different continents. And Japan was one of his favorites, for sure.
0: You put up some video that I really, really liked, and I wish there was more of it, of your father running into Bruno San Martino. And Roddy Piper, almost like a little kid, is hanging in the background saying, excuse me, can I have a photo? But Bruno really seems happy to see your dad. It almost seems like he can't believe this is Pampero Furpo.
1: Oh, yeah, that was so cool. And I I was really grateful to Lanny because that was the year that Lanny Paso's brother, Macho Man Randy Savage, was inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame. And it was in our backyard in San Jose. And so Lanny had invited my family to attend with him. And that was just such a thrill, too, just because of the connection with our families for so many years. And so my older brother was there. And my older brother is like bigger and stronger than I am and could kind of help and assist my dad because my dad was 85 at the time and always loved Bruno. Bruno was another just old school guy that was similar to Angelo Poffo and to my dad and just had those old world values. And it was so cool when I, I had initially gone ahead into the hotel and, and to the stadium, the Levi Stadium where it was. And when as soon as I saw Bruno there, I called my brother and said, you have to get dad down here. You know, he probably hadn't seen Bruno since the 1970s. And that was just such a thrill. And It was it was just really cool. I remember being in the hallway in that video where I shot that video with Piper and with Bruno, and I wish I would have shot more of it. I just myself was in awe of this meeting. And so Bruno turns and just says Pompero Firpo with that Italian accent. And they they just had great affection for each other. And they worked those programs in the 70s. And it was in Madison Square Garden. I think you would probably know better than I would. Um, It was just so cool. And I was so grateful that Lanny made that opportunity for us just to make those connections and get those pictures. and Piper. I wasn't quite sure how my dad had crossed paths with Piper. And as a kid, I remember being in middle school and these were my favorites, like Hulk Hogan, Roddy Piper, Randy Savage. These were just the the people I grew up watching as a kid. And so that was a huge thrill for me to see Roddy Piper. And so Dave Meltzer told me at my father's funeral that Piper and my dad crossed paths in 1980 when my dad was 50. And at the tail end of his career, working for Mike LaBelle in Los Angeles. And so that was where Piper and my dad had crossed paths. And then Piper told us, yeah, that was another video I posted. Again, I wish I had more footage. Piper said that he rode up and down with the Vachons, with Mad Dog Vachon and Butcher Vachon. And that was, my dad had broken into the United States with the Vich- when the Vachons were also, and the Vachons also wrestled as Russian characters before they became Butcher Vachon and Mad Dog Vachon. I think it was like Nikolai Zolotov, um maybe I'm probably getting that name wrong, but the Vishans had Russian characters like my dad did, and they worked together as Russians from the 1950s. So Roddy Piper said that when Piper was breaking into the business, he said, I was kind of mentored by Mad Dog. And he said, Mad Dog and Butcher would go up and down the road with Piper and tell Piper these stories of the ribs they had pulled on my dad, like affectionately, but, you know, just to kind of appease their boredom. And so Piper said, in particular, there was this one rib that they pulled on your dad, and they were so proud of it. And Piper said, Mad Dog and Butcher would tell me the story every single time I saw them. Like, they would just go up and down the road, and he said he would tell me the story about pulling this rib on your dad. And it's a great story. And um, it was so cool to see them again. So I don't think Piper and my dad had seen each other for over 30 years when they saw each other in the hallway at WrestleMania. It was really cool. What
0: is the rib story?
1: Oh, I'm so glad you asked. I would love to tell you. So... (laughs) So they, uh, this is such a great, this is such a great story. I love it. So there was a Canadian wrestling series called Wrestling with the Past and it was like the Canadian Comedy Central channel, like equivalent to what we have in the United States. And it was run, it was like 1999, 2000, maybe 2001. It was like a six episode series called Wrestling with the Past. And in the first episode, my dad and Butcher Vachon and Mad Dog Vachon were telling these stories about their time on the road. So the rib story was that my dad was on the road and he had just come to Texas. This is like 1950s. And the champion at the time was Vincent Lopez. And Vincent Lopez was driving a car, just going from town to town to a wrestling show or from a wrestling show. And Vincent Lopez was driving, and Butcher Vachon, then known as Nikolai Zolotov, or the Russian name, what he was wrestling as, was in the passenger seat. And my dad, known as Ivan the Terrible, had fallen asleep in the back seat. And so Vincent Lopez turns to Butcher while my dad is sleeping. And he said, I'm bored. Let's have some fun. Just follow my lead. So Lopez slams on the brakes and my dad just flies into the driver and passenger seat and jolts awake. And Lopez starts wailing and he's saying, I didn't see him. I didn't see him. I didn't see him. And my dad is kind of groggy and says, what are you talking about? And Butcher says, Lopez just hit a bicyclist. He he hit a bicyclist in the car and Lopez said, I'm, I'm going to go pull over and, and go take a look. So Lopez pulls over, gets out of the car goes and takes a look. And my dad and Butcher are inside the car. And my dad's just woken up and kind of freaked out. And Lopez comes back in and he said, he's really injured. And he said, I I need to finish him off. We can't have any witnesses. So Lopez pulls out a gun. And of course, there is no bicyclist. He's making this whole story up. And so Lopez pulls out a gun, walks back to this alleged injured bicyclist, you know, 50 yards away from the car and it's dark and nobody can see what's going on. And then Lopez fires the gun. So my dad hears he's like, boom, boom, boom. Lopez comes back and said okay you know he's he's done I took care of him and he said also he was wearing this this ring and he said I couldn't get it off his finger so I just cut off his finger and took the the bicyclist ring. So here's a souvenir I have from this guy that we just hit. So he shows the, the ring to my dad. And Of course, the sh- butcher is in on this rib and my dad has no idea. And so Piper, when he was telling the story to, to my dad and my brother and me in San Jose, he said, of course, your dad is freaking out in 17 different languages because he has like no idea what's just happened. And suddenly he's an accessory to murder. And my dad remembers it saying, I was just recently in the country. I'm on a visa. He said, all my dreams of being an American citizen, Are suddenly, you know, and I think my dad said initially too. He said, "You need to call the police after he'd hit the bicyclist." And Lopez said, "Not without, not with my record. You know, I'm going to take care of it myself." And so my dad thinks that this innocent man was just killed; that he is an accomplice now. And he's in the back and Lopez is the champ. And so, again, just my dad has recently arrived and just kind of has to go with what's happening here and didn't know what to do. And so they just kind of calmly drove away. And my dad's in the back of the car thinking, what am I going to do now? And they're driving toward the hotel. And as they're driving, I think Butcher had fallen asleep. And Lopez turns to my dad and he says in Spanish, we have to get rid of Butcher because we can't have any witnesses to this either. And I don't trust him. He said, I don't trust Butcher. We have to get rid of him. So Lopez tells my dad that he's going to go kill, that Lopez is going to kill Butcher when they get to the hotel. And so my dad, again, just is beside himself. He doesn't know what to do. And so my dad kept watch out of Butcher's hotel room and just kind of stood in the hallway and said, butchered, he said, Paul, don't leave your hotel. You know, don't leave your room for 24 hours. Like Vincent Lopez is coming to kill you. And Paul, of course, (laughs) is in on the rib. And so my dad has this sleepless night and I think they told him the next morning. And so Vincent Lopez had passed away by the time that they had shot the Wrestling with the Past series, and my dad is kind of reliving this, and he's almost, my dad looks like he's almost kind of getting angry here in like the year 2000, telling this story as he's hearing Butcher and Mad Dog kind of laughing, recalling this rib that they had pulled on him, and my dad said, I was mad, man, I was real mad. And then he he almost looks like he has this PTSD kind of flashback, like he's going back into that. And Butcher just kind of puts his arm around him and mad dog. He goes, Ah, it's okay, FERP. You know, we were different people then. I was Ivan Zolotov or Nikolai I said and you were Ivan the Terrible. And he said it was he said we were just different people and ha ha ha, let bygones be bygones. My dad just kind of starts this like uneasy laughter and just kind of snaps out of it a little bit. But you could tell it was like this very significant event for him that he was uh he was kind of traumatized by that, you know, and I was watching that, and I thought, oh my gosh, i I could not have lasted ten minutes in the wrestling business i can't I just don't know how he made a career out of over thirty years in this uh this type of environment.
0: Well, let's talk about the end when he decided to get out of the ring. You mentioned running in the Roddy Piper in nineteen eighty in Los Angeles. I talked to Jeff Walton from the Los Angeles office a little bit about his memories of Pempero Fio, and he talked about a conversation they had around this period of time where Pampero Ferpa was concerned because he didn't have insurance, Mm
2: -hmm. and he had a sick daughter. Mm -hmm. Mm
3: -hmm.
0: Obviously, he was an older guy by this period of time. He was, like you said, he was 50 years old in 1980. Mm
4: -hmm. How much of
0: him getting out of wrestling was his age? How much of it was a concern about your sister? How much did your sister's illness affect him during this period of time?
1: That's a really, really good question. And I think about that interview. I'm a huge Roddy Piper fan, and I think about that interview that Piper – got fired for. And when he did the interview for HBO, are you familiar with real sports? Yeah. Yes. Yes. And Piper's line was wrestling has a great entrance plan and something like it doesn't have an exit plan. Right. And I just, I always resonated with that line. So here's my dad from Argentina with a high school education and his work experience is just through wrestling. And he talks about different wrestlers and promoters being interested in him going into a managerial role, like being a manager, being a road agent. But my sister, my sister was diagnosed with Ewing sarcoma, which is a non-genetic bone tumor that was cancerous in her leg. And we were living in California, we were living in San Jose, and we were close to Stanford Hospital, which is just world-renowned medical care. And that was in 1979. And so my mom was with the three of us you know my brother was 9 and my sister was 6 and i was 4 years old and my dad was on the road and so i think that and like you said he was getting older and you know his, his daughter needs this medical care so she actually she got the chemotherapy for a couple of years and she was in remission from cancer for the rest of her life, but the reason she passed so young was because the chemotherapy drug that she was given called adriamycin, damaged her heart and she passed from heart failure at such a young age, which was an unintended consequence from the medication she was given as a child. However, um, at the time that she was ill, she still had a, a reasonably good prognosis that if she could go through the chemo and get treatment that she could recover and be in remission, which she was until she was in her 40s and um, passed away. So I think at that point, like you said, my dad, who was kind of beaten up a little bit, he was almost 50 years old. It was kind of time to hang things up. And he didn't want to do the, to take the offers he'd had about going on the road or managing or being an agent or with all of his multi-languages. He could kind of be an intermediary for the wrestlers who came from other countries. And he just had this sense that he didn't want to be on the road anymore. And I think a big part of that was wanting to be there for my family and my sister while she was going through those treatments. That was when he kind of hung it up.
0: And that was a big change. He went from being a a professional wrestler of world renown to working for the post office. What do you remember about that transition? Obviously, you were very young, but I'm sure you must have heard things. But also, when was the first time you saw your father without the long hair and without the facial hair?
1: Oh my gosh. That was probably 1984, 1985. So he kept that look until, and he wouldn't, he didn't look wild. He didn't wear his hair like an Afro. He would put it back in a ponytail. Some of his pictures look like that or his wedding picture. He still had the long hair, but he would put it back in a ponytail and kind of trim his beard. But I remember I was so traumatized when I saw him without that beard. I, I thought, oh my gosh, it just doesn't even look like him. That was probably when I was around 10 or 11. He pretty much shaved the beard and then never grew it back. Like he just shaved the beard and then he cut his hair. And one of his, my favorite lines from him was Bill Apter had talked to my dad and said, what happened to all your hair? And this interview is on YouTube with Bill Apter and my dad from um, 2012, my dad was 82. And my dad kind of chuckled and said, well, time comes when you have to look a little more acceptable to society, you know? (laughs) And so I think, and I, you know, I really admire him because what had happened was he got out of wrestling and didn't immediately get on with the post office. And so he had a family to feed and a mortgage to pay and had to, you know, put food on the table. And my mom was a stay-at-home mom. So I really admire him. He worked at some point two and three jobs. Like just um, he would get on with the company and and try to like sale like he got a salesperson job at one point because he was so charismatic and could talk to people and then he got a job doing security at the local shopping mall. He worked at a gas station here locally just trying to find something that could be more permanent with a better salary. And it took him a couple of years to get on with the post office. And that was a huge blessing because he was just those federal jobs. I'm a public school teacher and they have a pension and not like what Roddy Piper said, this is the opposite. There's a great exit plan with the post office or with being law enforcement or with being a public school teacher. So he worked until he was 78 and he finally retired in 2008. And I'll tell you, he probably had another four or five years in him. Um, he was strong as an ox. He got—he never delivered mail, but he did processing and would lift the mail sacks. And he received numerous commendation letters in his postal career and was employee of the month and employee of the year. And they would sometimes do write-ups in their postal magazine about how the wild bull of the pompous is working third shift as mail handler, 7054, whatever it was. So he had some notoriety within the department. And many of his colleagues were Filipino and from different places internationally, and he would talk to them. And he was kind of a star at the post office, you know, just with his work ethic and his honesty. Sometimes he would find like sums of money and things that were unaccounted for and turn those in. And he just he, re, he it became a real blessing, I think, for him and for our family that he got on with the post office, and that was what was able to sustain him economically when he retired with his benefits and his pension. And it was um, it was like a really cool second chapter in his life. I was very proud of him that he didn't hesitate to get a, a, a real or more conventional job to support himself and to support us after he finished wrestling. It was really commendable. Did he enjoy
0: being recognized by people after he left the wrestling business? And also, did he keep up with it? Did he keep up with any of his former colleagues? And did he actually watch any wrestling on TV?
1: Yeah, he did. He had a real love for the wrestling business and he had such a love for wrestling fans. And when he got his award at Cauliflower Alley Club in 2001, Nick Bockwinkle had invited my dad and my dad was giving the speech. And I also put that on YouTube. And the first thing he says is he said, wrestling fans, if you're a wrestling fan, raise your hand. And he says to all of you, I just want to give my deepest thanks for allowing me to achieve my dream and to bring my family here. And and he just had a deep love for the fans. And he didn't ever refer to them derisively or as marks or try to speculate with them or take advantage. He had a real sense of that he owed his Dream. He owed his gratitude. He said to the fans who demanded my action, whether they loved me or hated me, they came to see me and they kept me in business. And so he had a real love for that. And when people recognized him, he had this beautiful signature. He would do almost look like calligraphy, which was his handwriting. And again, it was so funny to see this wild looking character. And he had this beautiful, it looked like. A colonial, like a George Washington type signature, and he would not hesitate to sign autographs or if people would try to pay him. He said, no, no, no. You know, he would always just um, loved interacting with people. He also maintained his physique. He was very active. He looked very young, really young. He always looked 20 years younger than he was. And he would go to the local gym. He would do some personal training for people and he would just chop it up with people at the gym and tell them wrestling stories. And, and he just he kept himself like physically in shape. He always said he stayed away from cigarettes, alcohol, drugs. Like he just he loved training. He loved talking to people. A lot of the people at the local gym where he worked out wanted some of his training tips and to talk to him about wrestling. And he loved all of that. He loved I loved him being recognized. I thought that was just so cool. And and whenever he was approached by people, they just had a love for him. Little children loved him. Elderly people loved him. It's like you just could sense that he was such a good, decent, big hearted guy. He just was the most wonderful. He just was the most wonderful father. And I. I appreciate this outpouring of love from the wrestling community after my dad has passed. And I, um, you know, I think one of the reasons I'm so at peace with his passing is because he was at peace with it and he lived, I, I count him as 90 years old, even though he didn't quite make it till his birthday in April. He's born in 1930 and he passed on January 9th, 2020. And I thought, you know, he made it to 2020. I'm going to consider him 90 years old. And he expressed a real peace for what he accomplished. He said many times, he said, I accomplished my destiny. And he did that through wrestling and with the love of the wrestling fans and through his hard work. And he was very much at peace with his life and his legacy. And I just think that's you can't ask for anything else. And so I'm, I'm also very much at peace with the life that he lived and, and the legacy and the memories he left behind. I love hearing from people. And, and he did too. We, my brother and I got fan letters mailed to our house Throughout our whole lives, even up until the end, we, John and I probably get one or two letters every month from people sharing their stories, asking for autographs, sending pictures. And he just did that without hesitation. He was always very grateful that people remembered him and and his career. And um, so are we, my brother and I love that. We love hearing from people and we're we're really grateful for that.
0: You know, so many guys get out of the wrestling business and they don't take anything with them. They don't keep anything. Mm. They don't clip anything out of the newspaper or they don't have any of the magazines or programs. Your yeah. father had these scrapbooks. Talk a little bit about them and did you ever talk to him about why he did that? He is rather unique in, yeah. wrestling in that he actually tracked where he went and all the articles. Seems like everything he can get his hands on.
1: He Oh, kept it's so in those cool. Scrapbooks. It was so cool. And he, oh, and you asked also if he kept up with friends in the business and watched wrestling and he did, like he, he didn't watch it consistently. He didn't watch raw or, you know, uh, WCW, like every single week and things like that, but he loved hearing from people. And I think he would talk to Nick Bockwinkle occasionally and different people in the business. And, you know, even the younger generation too, when he went to a house show when WWE was in San Jose and he, He really had a a section for the business. He really did. But his scrapbooks, he told me the other day and I just, oh my gosh, I lost my mind. He said that he had a ton of other memorabilia from those early years in South America and Mexico that he tossed when he was moving from someplace to someplace else. And I thought, oh my gosh, because I just, oh, it just, I couldn't even believe it. My heart just sunk because it's so priceless. They're just such treasures. So he has things from his career. The earliest ones are like 1952, 1954, and that was in Argentina. He has a picture that says my first professional wrestling match and it's dated 1952. And he just, I think part of the reason he cataloged things was because he wasn't a partier. So he didn't go out and with nightlife and drinking and Parting and things like that. So I think that was something, it just makes me laugh to think of Pompero Fripo, like in his hotel room scrapbooking, like saving these mementos. But I think part of the reason he did that was because it gave him something to do that was constructive. And I think he also was really proud of himself and what he was achieving that he set out from Argentina on his own and made it in the United States. And he headlined wherever he went and was a box office draw in a main event. And so he shared those clippings with his family back home. And I think that was another reason that he kept those scrapbooks, was that he could show his family what he was doing. He was very close to his. This is before I was born. His family was his sisters and his parents, and he was very close with them. And so I think that was part of it, too. And I I don't know that he even kept those for his children, because like I said, I was the one who was fascinated by those scrapbooks, and he had them on the bookshelf when I was growing up in our home. My parents divorced when I was 10 years old. And when he moved out of the house, he and my mother still had an amicable relationship and he was always very connected with my sister and my brother. But when he moved out of our family home into an apartment in San Jose, he took those scrapbooks with him. And whenever I was visiting at his apartment or when I was at home before my parents' divorce, I would sit and just pour over those scrapbooks and Try to talk to him about them. And he wouldn't really say much to me about that. I was a little girl. And again, I think he was kind of protecting the business, but it was just a source of fascination for me. And I'm so glad that he kept those. And it it makes me so pleased to be able to share those with people who remember as children themselves, just watching him in action or people who remember that era in wrestling. It's just so cool. And I, I appreciate, Brian, all the work that you do and the 605 and the people you have on and the historians. It's like, I'm so glad that these stories are still being told. Well, Mary,
0: I really appreciate the time you've given us today, and I'm very appreciative of how much of your father's life and career you're sharing with us. As we wrap up this segment, how would you like to see your father remembered?
1: I, you know, I'll say it in his own words, because about a year before he passed away, my father's memory was not as good as it had been when he was younger, and when he was sitting at my table, he had this moment of clarity, and he was speaking so clearly, and I'm so grateful, too. I just started recording him on my phone, and as he got ill in the last few months of his life, it gave me great peace to listen to his own words, and what he said about a year ago is he said that he felt like his life was nearing the end and he spoke metaphorically and he said, I feel like the curtain will be closing soon. And he said, everybody remembers me for my kind heart. And he said, everybody remembers me because I always did the best for people. And he said, I never let anybody down. He said, when I was supposed to be where I was supposed to be, I was there. And he said he always tried his best to help people to have a kind heart and to follow through and be responsible with his bookings and where he was supposed to be. And he said, I never let anybody down, you know, the fans or the promoters or my family. So he had real peace about that. And that's how I had peace about him too, that apart from all of his wonderful accomplishments in wrestling. He just had an extraordinary life apart from that. And he was the best dad I could have asked for. And that's how I, I will always remember him as not just Pampero Furpo, the fabulous, wonderful wrestler, which he was, but as my dad and all of the, the love that he showed me throughout my life.
0: We continue our look at Pampero Furpo here on the 605 Super Podcast this week. By speaking about the Wild Bull of the Pampas with the son of Wild Bull Curry, a celebrated wrestler in his own right, Flying Fred Curry. Fred, thanks for being here today. My pleasure. Obviously, I know that you encountered Pampero Furpo during your career, specifically in Detroit, but if we could take a step back, because he came to Texas in, I believe, 1959, and your father was one of the biggest stars the state of Texas ever saw. Do you remember when you first heard about Pampero Furpo or saw Pampero Furpo?
5: Well, I, I did. I, I I heard of him in uh reading the programs my my dad used to send back to our home. But I mean I I first met Pompero personally when I was in the Detroit area in the early sixties on and I, I was in Hawaii with him too. The guy he never had any vices, I'm telling you it
0: was something else so i mean there's right there we're talking about three different versions of him because when your father would have first encountered him in texas he was ivan the terrible when you would have seen him in hawaii he was the missing link and of course when he finally came to detroit in 1972 he was pampero Furpo. let's talk about hawaii a little bit what do you remember about being there in hawaii with him where he was a major star well
5: i'll tell you what i remember you know in hawaii it was really funny we had an hour-and-a-half TV show. Half an hour was wrestling, an hour was talking. And nobody could talk better than Pompero Firpo. He'd have a little cup of tea, and he'd start talking, and he'd talk for about a half an hour. And everybody would be interested in what he had to say. He was, like, unique and sincere, and uh, he, he, was, he just had a great voice. He had that grapple voice. Rah, rah. You know, when I talked to him on the phone, uh a few years back, I said, Hey Pompero, come on, give me that voice again and <laughs> He he was something else. But I mean I mean, I mean, I mean he was perfect for Hawaii uh in Detroit he was the wild man, he was perfect and I mean I mean but here's a guy that I seen he never went to an after hours party and no one would dare say a cuss word or phone. The guy's a sincere, straightforward, old-school type wrestler, no nonsense.
0: He would come to Detroit in 1972 at first as a heel on the side of the Sheik. Did he fit in right away? You were there. You were working in Detroit at that time. Did he
5: fit yeah, in sure. right away? He fit in right away because his style was the only style that was there. You know, his his voice, and he had a manager. And uh, he was he was like the wild man of the Pampas. He was uh, I think he was an Armenian from Armenia, yeah. and he was a real gravel type. And he had hair all over his face. He couldn't see his eyes, shouting and yelling, and he'd be charging all the time. He was he was uh, what you say? Action makes reaction. He was an action guy in the ring. It always charge you, always come on you, always come toward you. You hit him, and he could go back a little bit and be like a surprise. Hell, first time I ever wrestled him, I had to get the hell out of the ring because he started chasing me all over. <laughs> <laughs> he was seen as something else, Pompero. Very respectful. I mean, uh, like I said, nobody would say a cuss word in front of him. Never seen him that after. Any after-hour parties. The guy was all business.
0: He was all business and all family, from what I've been
4: told.
5: You're you're, you're not kidding. You know, this is his uh, daughter, Mary. I would talk to her a long time, then look for Pompeo, and and I'd get him to talk at his old voice again. But he was very respectful. You can see this guy was like from another country, another hemisphere. You know, he was not like the other wrestlers. You know, my dad was an old school type guy too. But the, I mean, these two guys—hey—they uh, were not no party goers. Never seen him chasing any women. Never seen him off-color jokes. They to themselves. They'd relax and whatever. And then when you see him. they were kind of fun of those to be with. But you had to watch what you were saying. Couldn't say anything bad.
0: How did your father like working with them?
5: Yeah, he enjoyed them. You know, because that was uh, my dad's style and his style. I mean, they they kept on coming at you. And in fact, that style was old school style and it drew a lot of money. Because, you know, it was really funny in those days. Cobalt, Detroit was always sold out. Uh, The Maple Leaf Gardens was sold out. In California, when I was in the San Francisco area, you know, in Hawaii, and every every place these guys sold out, they were believable. They were uh, right down to the letter, and they were they were the they were action guys, and they know how to talk and knew how to transmit what they wanted to say to the people. But I tell you what, Pompeo was perfect in Hawaii. Boy, he was perfect in Detroit.
0: I was going to say, where did he fit in better in your eyes, Detroit or Hawaii?
5: Yeah, both places. You know, because uh, he was an action reaction in Detroit. He was an action reaction in Hawaii. But Hawaii, there was more talking. Talk for an hour. And, I mean, he had, uh, you know, all all the big stars from yesterday year with their magnificent Maurice and Johnny Barron, who's a green hornet. And uh, all all the big stars. And uh, and it was really funny. When we come back from Kelkia, we always stop in uh, Hawaii. And Papa he was there. He spent a lot of time there. He spent a lot of time in Detroit. You know, I mean, this guy here, I never seen him at a party. I never seen him sending off-color jokes. I mean, uh, when we went, went to the Cauliflower Alley Club, uh, Hall of Fame induction ceremonies. I always watch what I'm going to say instead of Pampero. Do you remember, cause you were in Detroit
0: when he had his big baby face turn where he was teaming with the Sheik, and he accidentally got fireballed and that led to Pampero furpo who had been a heel for the better part of two years in Detroit, turning baby face and going against the Sheik. Do you remember any of that?
5: Yeah, I remember a lot, a lot of it. Uh, you know, uh, yeah, it's just really funny listening to you. Seems like you were one of the boys. <laughs> talk about baby face heel and all that. So you're pretty familiar with the, the logging and talking. But um, Pompeo, uh, they didn't make any mistakes in Detroit at that time. But that heyday, from the 60s on to the mid-70s, here they were packed the houses all the time. 72 was the banner year. But then we went all over, and uh, Pompera was part of that. Was, yeah, we wrestled in Alaska. We wrestled all through New York. Dean, uh wrestled in the uh, southwestern uh, part of the country in uh, Arizona, Scottsdale, Albuquerque, New Mexico. All over that TV that big-time wrestling had went everywhere. And uh, Fripple was a part of that. And he was perfect in Hawaii. Guy he breaks me up on mine to see him right now. (laughs) I mean right in my head. You know, he's a guy you don't forget.
0: Well, we know what he sounded like on his promos. What did he sound like in the locker room? You said that you couldn't curse in front of him, but did his voice change once he was not on camera?
5: Very little. No, he wasn't shouting, but he had that gravel voice. Um, I'll tell you what, he, he was a unique... Did you ever meet him?
0: I didn't, no.
5: Well, you he was like that. I mean, he was... Uh, he he wasn't shouting or, you know, in an angry type of mode. When he was on TV and all that, he was in an angry type of mode. And this, he was just talking, but you could, you could hear the the the, the gravelness in the voice and everything like that. But he was always very, very respectful of everybody around him. He was something else. Cuss in front of him. Yeah, you know, I always thought that guy was part of, he might have been a priest because uh, he just was a different type of guy.
0: Your father, of course, was of Lebanese descent and Pampero was of Armenian descent. and That's correct. Various other people like the sheik, came from the Middle East. Did a lot of those guys stick together? Did they look out for each other?
5: They all stuck together because uh, they all ate uh, Arabic food and uh, Armenian food, which uh, encompassed grape leaves and all that type of spicy foods. I mean, that these, these guys, uh, it was like from the, the same area. It was this, the same uh, venue. Everybody, that type of thing, you know, they're, they're, that's how people were over there, I guess. You know, wild and, uh, you know, no-nonsense type of guy, and they're very serious. Pompeo was a serious type guy. My dad was a serious. You know, I I, remember, I just remember, you know, speaking of, I was in a, a place with my dad in uh, Detroit, and uh, I seen one of these gangsters, which was very prevalent in the Detroit area. And I, I know I seen this guy come in with, a uh, long cigar smoking pot, a cigarette smoking with a cigarette holder, guy who was in control of the guy, and they beat up on a guy. But he came over to my dad. I think he was trying to recruit him. But my dad just looked at him glassy eyed and never said a word to him. And the guy said, Well, I'm either going to want to shake hands with you or run. He said, Well, I think I'm just going to run. <laughs> these, guys really, really, these guys are really gangsters because. Uh, in that, that, that place I was in, these two two guys, that was one of them, came in there with this long cigarette-smoking type of gangster. They, they You go to the guy who was in control of the place, they did Kiss. In the, it was, this was really the right out of the movie. And they pulled this one guy off. They were teed off at him out of the chair and kicked him in the head. And they. it was something else. But going back to Pompero, like I said, he was a no nonsense type of guy. He was straightforward, he was very respectful he uh never was a party goer never never seen him chasing women, and he was a real family man and I you know after talking to his daughter and uh being on the phone with him a long time, I just could feel all that that type of uh He's always in control of what he was saying and he was he was a heck of a heck of a good performer because I mean baby face bad guy or whatever he wanted to be he could fit the part you know when he's a, when he's a, he always came at you action man my type of guy and he was uh, the big houses you know I, you know I look at these these houses they have nowadays. And no comparison. I always, we were before houses with thousands and thousands of people, twenty-five thousand, fifteen. It was like in it was a Madison Square Garden, and Everywhere we went, and that was the way these guys worked. These guys were hard-nosed, all business, no screwed around type of individuals, and very respectful
0: i am happy to welcome to the super podcast and say aloha to bill atkinson in hawaii and we're going to talk about pampero Furpo, or as he was known in hawaii the missing link and the time he spent down in hawaii bill thanks for being here today
2: okay nice talking to you
0: what can you tell me about how the missing link first got to Hawaii. Obviously, he had been wrestling in various different places under various different names. He was Ivan the Terrible in Texas. He became Pampero Furpo. And then he would come to Hawaii and get an all-new persona. What can you tell me about how he first got there?
2: Okay, he first got here on April 6, 1966 at a Civic Auditorium card. He teamed with uh, Handsome Johnny Baran and Ripper Collins in a six-man tag team match. And what happened is um, he was a bad guy. And he actually, on that same card, he wrestled uh, Chief J. Strumble. He went under the name Joe Scarpia. Yeah, his real name. Yeah, he wrestled under that name. He wrestled twice that night. And anyway, he was a bad guy. And uh, apparently, he came to the rescue of uh, Nef Mayava And he um, turned, I guess, he helped him out and in this infuriated uh, Brandon Collins. And they had a series of grudge matches throughout. Uh, all the way to uh, June 29, 1966, when uh, Johnny Buran defended his U.S. title against him in a match at the Honolulu National Center. From what I heard, that um, he was injured in that match, and he spent 29 days at the Queen's Hospital in Hawaii. He wrestled in trunks. When he came back, he had a big scar on him. And he covered it up with the uh, current outfit that he wore for the rest of his career. He had a series of grudge matches with... Um, Brandon and collins and then he wrestled all the way to 19, early 67 and then he left and then he came back in 1968 as a good guy he, he came back in 68 and that's when i started watching
0: him just to give a little bit of the background and a little bit of the history here obviously some of the names you mentioned are known like handsome johnny Berend is someone who was a star here in the states and then became an even bigger star in hawaii when it comes to johnny Berend and ripper collins do they rank really high on the list of all-time Hawaiian wrestling greats?
2: Tony Brand does for his uh, wrestling, Ripper Collins, because he did crazy interviews, and so did everybody mispronounced the Hawaiian language. So he was just the notorious villain that all the locals over here hated. In terms of the
0: TV, obviously there isn't much, if any, footage that still exists to this day Describe for me, if you can, I know you started watching in 68, what the TV was like. Was it matches in a studio? Was it interviews? How long were the interviews? Describe Hawaiian wrestling TV for me.
2: Okay, they had two shows. One was called Wrestling from the Civic or Wrestling from the Honolulu International Center. Wrestling was held at the Civic Auditorium downtown Honolulu and then had a new arena called the Honolulu International Center, so they would take two matches And they would squeeze interviews in between them, and then they would air them on Friday nights at 10 o'clock or 10.30 after the news. It was called Wrestling from the Civic or the Honolulu National Center. And you would watch these matches. And then on uh, they squeezed interviews. They had two matches. They played one match, and they had the locker room interviews, which ran a good – it was a 90-minute show. And it would run – interviews would run maybe 30 minutes. And they used it to promote the upcoming card every Wednesday they held in Honolulu. And then the Saturday show was a live show at the KGMB studio. And that opened up. It was called 50th State Wrestling. It, had, it opened up, and they would have a segment called demonstrations. And most of it was done by the good guy wrestlers. They would demonstrate wrestling holes. And then they would have a studio match. And then they would do the locker room interviews, and they would go back and have the last studio match. And then it ended. I attended uh, several of the studio shows. It was called KGMB Studio. And that was the name of the show, Fifty Estate Wrestling. In terms of
0: television in Hawaii during this period of time, the mid-60s, the late-60s, can you please describe for the listeners, how many channels were there? When something like 50th State Wrestling aired, did a lot of people watch it? What was the competition? What was television like in Hawaii during this period of time?
2: Well, back then, we had no satellite, hardly any live sports from the mainland. Most of the shows were taped, delayed the sporting events. They would air the next day or later in the night. They would fly the films in from Los Angeles. So basically, on a Saturday afternoon, on Friday night, there was no late night programming. Maybe they would have late night movies on the other shows. On Saturday, I know the rest, they would have um, either movies or just reruns of other TV shows on the other two channels. There's channel 2, 4, 9, which airs the wrestling channel. Um, 13 which was an independent station and just to let you know wrestling started on channel four and then it's described in the book 50th state wrestling then they didn't want to do a long time contract and they switched over to kgmb in 67 so basically you didn't have much to watch back then
0: so a lot of people were watching that wrestling show and again like you said it wasn't just matches you had about a half hour of interviews those interviews and those personalities, how big was that? How much did that connect? When you were first getting into wrestling in 1968 and you would see someone like the Missing Link, Pampero Ferpo, doing an interview, did it immediately connect with you? Did it connect with the other kids you grew up with? How big was it amongst the youth in Hawaii?
2: Okay, the Missing Link was really popular. Remember in kids, a lot of guys would go, oh yeah, kids in school on the playground. And then uh, myself, I was more attracted to the bad guys like Ripper Collins, Johnny Burand. Uh, cause I like that crazy talk they did. I was never really a, a good guy fan, but the missing link i've i' you could actually back in walk up to the wrestlers, you can get their autographs right there at the back of the arena, and they're really accessible, really friendly to the public. by the way, uh, I want to let you know something that the missing link because I do have a lot of audio recordings, was so popular you actually did commercials for. Uh, KGMB TV actually did a newscast doing the weather.
0: The <laughs> get out of here!
2: Yeah, because I have the I have a lot of audio recordings from November sixty seven through June sixty eight, and I, I when I first got out, I would listen to him fanatically. There's one where he did the uh, Friday night news preceding the fiftieth uh, state wrestling TV show. That was I mean the wrestling from the Civic TV show airing that night. When you first got interested and started
0: watching and the missing link had come back to Hawaii, how was he presented? Was he presented as a returning legend? Was he presented as someone who, obviously, he had a background. He had come in originally as a bad guy, had become a good guy, and then quickly got injured. How was he presented when he returned in 68?
2: When he came back, he came back on on January 10th, 1968. If you go to my website, it has the return of the missing link. And he teamed with Nefmaiava and Jim Haiti. and they battled Killer Kowalski, Angelo Poffo, and Kingji Shibuya in a six-man tag match. And when he came back, he was a good guy. What happened is that Johnny Buran and uh, Jim Haiti were the Hawaiian tag team champions, and they split. Johnny Buran, for a brief period, was a good guy. They split, and each of them had one t- each part of the title. Each half had one half of the Hawaiian tag team title. And so Barran he went back to Johnny Buran, so what happened is Jim Haiti picked the missing link as his tag team partner, and they they rived that promotion up all the way to uh, a match that was where Ripper Collins had a trophy that was an old an old trophy was the Hawaiian Tag team champions from the Alcosic days where Jim Hady and the missing link had the tag belts, and they had a match in nineteen sixty eight it was held on um February 21st, 1968, I have photos up of it on my website under the classic matches. And then the, the, the premise of the match was um, if Johnny Buran and Ripper Collins lost, Haiti and the Missing Link would destroy the trophy. And the other side of the coin was if Buran and Collins lost, they would uh, cut up the belt. And it just so happened that Haiti and the Missing Link defeated Buran and Collins two straight falls during that match.
0: What can you tell the listeners about Jim Haydy? Because I know that The Missing Link was close with him, and of course, he would meet a tragic end. Let the listeners know a little bit of his background.
2: When I first started, uh, Jim Haydy was really popular. He was a good guy. At the time, he when I first started to see him, he was a, a popular wrestler. On the 50th State Big Time Wrestling Show, in The 50th State, they called it the 50th State Wrestling. When it first opened up, Jim Haydy would always do these demonstrations for the first time maybe 15 minutes of the show showing fans wrestling moves. And then, you know, basically he, he, he became, you know, he wrestled with the missing link. They lost their titles to Ripper Collins and Curtis the bull. And shortly after that, Jim Hady, he won the Hawaiian title from Johnny Buran. And then they changed it to the North American title. He lost his title to professor Tanaka on Christmas day, 68. And supposedly he broke his hand. He hit his hand on the rope, and he couldn't wrestle for a few weeks. And then when he went back to wrestle, he, and at Schofield Barracks, he was in a six-man tag, and he said he wasn't feeling well. And he went home, he collapsed and died. How I heard about it was when I went to elementary school the next day, that's oh, all everybody talked about on the bus and in school that Jim eighty died. And he was really popular over here. The news ran reports on him. I actually attended a memorial show at the Civic Auditorium where all the wrestlers came out and pay tribute to him but if you mention jim Hades' name to a lot of people they, he was very popular he was accessible the fans were autographs he spoke very well you know he was uh one of the few uh they over here white guys are called howies i'm one of them but he was one of the most popular howie wrestlers that ever wrestled in hawaii he was the one everybody
0: liked and that tribute show was to raise money for his widow correct
2: Right. It was um, all benefits will go to, I remember the clipping said, all benefits will go to Mrs. Hady. And I, I remember it was um, all the wrestlers came out that night. Everybody stood up. They rang the bell 10 times. And um, after that, the wrestling match started. I remember the rest, even Ripper Collins, who hated Jim Haiti. Went on there and uh, actually paid a nice tribute to him on the interviews. That was, that's what I always remember, because instead of Ripper Collins trashing the good guys, he played a nice tribute to Jim Hady. You mentioned that you started attending
0: shows in 1968. What was the makeup of the crowd in terms of, was it a wild crowd? Was it a crowd that rioted often at that point in time and in the late 60s? What was it like to attend a show in Honolulu?
2: The first matches I used to go to were at this arena called Block Arena, which is right outside of Pearl Harbor. They would hold wrestling every other Sunday there. And basically it was mainly all military people, you know, dependents and military people. Actually a very peaceful crowd. When I went to the Civic Auditorium, the first match I attended was in July '68. It was Ripper Collins against Curtis the Bull in a grudge match. The crowd was more rowdier. In fact, speaking of riots... If you go to April third, nineteen sixty-eight, on my on my website in the classic matches, it was a riot at the Civic Auditorium, where Peter Maivia and Neft were beat up by Curtis the Bull and Johnny Barand, and the fans rioted.
0: And the missing link was on that show.
2: Yeah, he battled Ripper Collins. That was
0: his arch enemy in Hawaii. Was that his? I mean, was it more Ripper Collins than Johnny Barend as the arch enemy for the missing? Link? Yes.
2: Because Ripper Collins would always tease him about the scar he had on his stomach when he he switched from the trunks to that that current wrestling outfit they had to strap around his shoulder. He would always humiliate the missing link. And one match I remember I never went to, but it was promoted. It was a match between Ripper Collins and uh, Penferro Furple and the loser would get his head shaved in the ring. And... Ripper Collins lost, they shaved his head and he started wearing a mask, but from that on moment, they always had feuds. It was always a missing link. They had feuds over the years, and Ripper Collins was his number one enemy in Hawaii.
0: What was the actual injury uh, in the match with Johnny Berend in 1966? Do you know?
2: Well, from what I heard as a kid, he injured his spleen. He got slammed into the pole and Berend and Collins attacked him. They kept stomping on him. And I just heard this from wrestling fans because I wasn't watching the time that he had broke his spleen, and he spent the time in the hospital. If you go, I have it on the history on the wrestler section. He spent, I think, over a month in the Queens Hospital, and he came back for a series of grudge matches against Brandon Collins. And I heard it was a spleen injury. He had a gigantic scar, a couple of scars, and he switched to that current outfit he wore because it covered the scars. After 68, when did he come back to Hawaii? He came back in January 68 as a tag team partner of uh, Nef Maiava and Jim 80. January 68. And he stayed basically to the middle of the year. He left again. Then he came back in a six-man tag team match. They listed him as a mystery wrestler. They didn't know who it was. And then he came out in that tag team match as the last guy out and was a missing link, and the whole crowd went nuts. You know, we're talking a little bit about
0: these shows that you attended, and obviously you were on Oahu. But for the promotion for 50 Estate Wrestling, what was the rest of the schedule like? Were they doing many shows in Maui, or was there anything in Kauai? Were there shows on the other side of the island? What was a typical schedule like for the promotion?
2: Okay. What, what, how it was, is they had the Sunday show. You start off the first day of the week, Sunday, with we either wrestle at Schofield Barracks an Army base, or they would go to Block Arena, Pearl Harbor. Then on Wednesday, they would have their weekly cart. And then uh, once a month, they would go to the Outer Islands. It's usually Monday and Tuesday. Monday was Hilo, and Tuesday was Maui. And then occasionally, they would go to Kauai or Molokai to wrestle. That's how their schedule was. It was once a month to the Outer Islands. I think in the summer, they increased it to uh, maybe two times a month going to the Outer Islands.
0: After Pampero Furpo, the Missing Link, leaves in June of 1968, when does he return again? Well, you said he returned for the Battle Royal. After the Battle Royal, is he there as a regular for a while, or what's his schedule like in Hawaii at that point in time?
2: Okay, uh, let me correct that. He returned in a six-man tag team match in August 1969. As a mystery partner, I think it was of Nick Bockwinkle and Dory Dixon in a six-man tag. He came back as a good guy. The reason I mentioned the battle royal that was later, Curtis the Bull held the Hawaiian tag team title with Ripper Collins. He held the Hawaiian championship, and he held the uh, they called it the North American the North American title at the time. It was a U.S. title. They switched it to North American title. So he gave up his Hawaiian title match, and then they had a battle royal. That the winner would be declared the Hawaiian champion. And the Missing League won that. That was in October '69. So he came back as a six-man tag team match. He was super popular. He lasted all the way to February 1970. He left again. Then he later returned in 1978 or 77 when Ed Francis restarted his promotion with weekly cards at Block Arena.
0: When was the battle royal where he came back as the surprise entrant?
2: He actually came back earlier, about two months earlier, in August '69. As a they had named him as a mystery wrestler. In the six-man tag, that Hawaiian title, that the, the battle royal was later. He did enter as the name the Infernal Furple. He won the um, Hawaiian championship by being the last man in the ring. October 8, sixty nine, Missing Link won the Texas battle royal, just becoming the Hawaiian champion. He returned in um, a few months earlier in a uh, as a mystery wrestler in a six-man tag team match. When he came out the whole crowd went nuts. I was there, everybody was wanting to know who was it gonna be. You didn't know you know, you didn't know was it was in the I was actually in the crowd because it was in the summer, that's when I started I was at the Civic Cards and everybody's wondering, wow, who is this guy? And all of a sudden he came out of the locker room and there was a missing link. He did his so yeah, roar and the whole
0: crowd went nuts at the civic auditorium. After this period of time, uh the beginning of nineteen seventy, he would leave for the mainland, and he wouldn't return for a long time, and obviously there are a lot of changes that would happen in Hawaiian wrestling. What was the state of affairs when he would return in 1977? How different was it than it had been in the 1960s?
2: Okay. In the 1960s, they had an arena that held 5,000 people. It was called a Civic Auditorium. In 1972, they stopped holding weekly wrestling shows there, so Ed Francis switched to monthly wrestling shows. And then it went all the way up to 74, then he stopped promoting wrestling. He brought it back in 1977, but what he did is he promoted weekly cards at Block Arena. So once a month went to the Honolulu National Center that was renamed the Blaisdell Arena after the after a Honolulu Bear that okayed the funding for the arena. So basically they held weekly cards instead of being downtown. The wrestling show wasn't live anymore. It was a tape show called Wrestling Hawaii. It was taped. The matches were taped at Block Arena or the the Blaisdell Arena. It was a one-hour show instead of a 90-minute show. The interviews were shorter. They had two matches in between. Basically, that was the difference between the promotion. Just the arenas changed. When they brought them back, they brought back Billy White Wolf, The Missing Link, Francis, uh, Sandra wrestling, and they would bring old timers back. But basically, they had new wrestlers, and the TV promotions were shorter. It was on Friday night at 10 o'clock called Wrestling
0: Hawaii. Did the fans remember The Missing Link well when he returned?
2: I was not there at the time. I was in the military. When I came back, I'd take my leave over here. And uh, I remember I went there. He wasn't there the first. He, he actually came back. I, when I first walked in the arena, he was outside uh, talking to some people. You know, he was still popular. It wasn't It wasn't like the old days when everyone would go, oh, yeah, when he walked out. The wrestlers weren't really accessible for autographs back then. It was more like uh it was a different time as far as, you know, you had satellite TV, outside sports. It just wasn't as, it, it wasn't as popular. I would go to the arena. It wasn't as full, like the HIC, the Civic, or the Sunday Block Arena Shoulder were just packed. It, I guess the crowds died down. It was just a different time.
0: And it's shortly after that where Pamparo Furpo, the missing link, would leave Hawaii for the last time, and his career would start winding down.
2: Actually, he did come back when Peter Maivia bought the promotion. Oh. He came back in the summer of 1980, and he wrestled. In fact, if you go to U2, there was a uh, battle royal that he was in with the as Panfero Firpo under the Peter Maivia promotions.
0: Bill, I really appreciate the time you're giving us today and also the history lesson into Hawaiian wrestling, 50th State Wrestling. Looking back on The Missing Link, what is the legacy he leaves behind in Hawaii?
2: He was super popular among fans. Everybody remembered the, oh, yeah, that was his signature thing that most people uh, mention. In fact, when he passed away the other day, I told a lot of older people about it. And they were they were like, oh, yeah, I remember The Missing Link. He was real popular for a lot of kids growing up because he was, he was a popular wrestler. He was a good guy. His, oh, yeah, signature made him popular. He was a popular wrestler.
0: You just heard my conversation with Hawaiian wrestling historian Bill Atkinson. Of course, Bill has a fantastic website that everyone should check out. 50th State Big And on this website, there are results, photos, descriptions of the wrestlers, descriptions of some of the angles and feuds that took place, and much, much more. He really did a fantastic job, and I encourage. Everyone out there with any interest in wrestling history to check out 50th State Big Time Wrestling.com. And of course, the audio from Hawaii was supplied by Bill here today. And we're very, very grateful and very thankful, and he's officially a friend of the show. And let's now hear some audio from April 6th, 1968. We're going to hear some audio of the opening moments and the closing moments of The Missing Link, Pampero Furpo, versus Jerry London, as well as an interview with Ed Francis that is taking place on the birthday of Pampero Furpo. He was born on April 6th. This interview is on April 6th, and the news that it's his birthday causes Ripper Collins to have a few words, so you'll hear a little bit of Ripper Collins, one of the other legendary wrestlers from the heyday of 50th State Wrestling. Let's go to this audio right now.
6: ...with a 15-minute time limit. Introducing first, in the blue corner, making his first appearance on 50th State Big Time Wrestling, Jerry London, Jerry London. His opponent this afternoon, he needs no introduction, he's from Argentina. The Wild Bull of the Pampas, the missing link. The missing link. Referee, Walla Katsumi, timekeeper, Dutt Rodriguez. Chief second, the Portuguese Flash, Nolan Rodriguez. I believe it's the time limit, yes, 15 minutes run out, no rest will score the fall, so Pampero attempts to shake hands with Jerry London, it's a draw, he's still in the ring, okay, Okay sports fans and the locker room with with Motorrad Francis in just a moment following this important message nine. number one in Honolulu Hawaii Pampero Fippo Come
7: on <laughs> Hiya. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you should be smiling too because you're gonna you and Eddie are going to be wrestling uh, Johnny Burrand and Curtis Yakea this uh, coming Wednesday at the Civic. Yes, we will meet these two fellows and uh, of course, this time we will not be on the stage, our championship match. But uh, believe me, it's not because we our ducking. We are not ducking to them for the belt. The only thing is this. These persons here, Ed Francis, think they would be easy to get my good partner, Jim Made and myself on the ring, like uh, you snap your fingers. Took us many nights and many days of training and secret conference get a successful win for that belt and we will remain as a champion let's go say it in the most humble way as long our as uh, good luck help us <laughs> I know you know I'm so happy so trippy now even I, I forget to speak a common and uh, regular English <laughs> already my English is very really broke and now I'm so excited that well you see today is a uh, very very unusual day for me, too. And that is one of the reasons why I'm so happy. I receive many, many letters. And, uh, you know, today I'm one year old, I'm one year old, uh, younger.
3: Today you're one year younger. You mean yeah. today's your birthday? Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, <thank> you. <laughs> that
7: is one of the reasons why I'm so happy, so treating, because you have to see my biggest present was all these children outside surrounding me and hugging me and giving me kisses and giving me lace and horograph, asking for and shaking and hugging. And oh, I'm telling you, I'm all mixed up and I don't drink. <laughs> hey, listen, uh, isn't, isn't, isn't a consequence of any liquor or nothing like that because I don't drink. Nothing like that vodka that I have once in a while. Well, uh, <laughs> each individual has his own, his own habit, you know. But mine, the only white liquid I drink is just milk. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well,
7: listen, uh, good luck in your match next thank week. Thank you, Ed. And uh, once again, thank you, Kiki's. Thank you, all of you, wrestling fans of the 50th state. And once again, my good partner, Gentleman Jim Hayden, and myself, we will do our best in the ring to satisfy all of you. Tofa. Well, let's get uh, Ripper Collins out.
6: (laughs) (laughs) Birthday time in the locker room. All the kickers are shaking his hand and giving him kisses on his birthday. He must have run ahead in the advertiser, stating that today was his birthday. I got two kids at home got something for you, Link. One carries a hammer and the other one got a pair of flowers, buddy. Happy birthday. (laughs) Are you ready for that? (laughs) There's a guy says don't drink anything stronger than milk. Left his trunks at home today and had to borrow a pair. Tell me he's on
0: straight milk. The next bit of audio we're going to hear is from May 10th, 1968. It's an interview with The Missing Link, as well as Peter Maivia and Nef Maiava. They are getting ready on May 15th to go up against handsome Johnny Berend, Ripper Collins, and King Curtis Ayukaya. There's a confrontation here with Ripper Collins, which apparently leads to our three heroes, Nef Maiava, Peter Maivia, and The Missing Link breaking boards over their heads. Let's go to this audio right now.
3: Well, let's bring uh, the missing link and uh, mm. either my dear Nip, my other, bring all them out here and see what they have to say. Remember about Chicago! 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 What you try to prove! You can impress us! Yes! The only thing we'll change is the city is, will be Honolulu. The rules will be the same. I know, and my partners know, what kind of dangerous match we are facing in this elimination team. We are sick and tired of we called names, hippies, bushy faces, etc, etc, etc. We are tired and we have a plan. Yes, we have made a plan and we will use it next Wednesday. Mm-hmm. Hello, Mr. Francis. We're always, always calling us the link, the, the monk and the monk. But we're gonna show them this week that we're not, you know, and we're we're three aheads we'll over call, here. We've we'll got some parts here to, to see that we're in shape. Our heads are all together, the, the three of us Oh, so, we somebody's always knocking down walls well, and everything in here. Well, well that's nothing. But uh that we about uh, knocking going? people down. I think well, Mr. Link will are gonna show this how uh, we break don't, We have to show a proof anything Let people know how strong these are head now. Wait, do we, we have? Uh, we have to show uh, them. Okay, who's okay. so so going gonna show you. what? Who's gonna do what? Legs are gonna
6: break the board.
3: The pedal's gonna break it? We're fist huh? No, 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 no. Head, you do you get, my What's the matter with what What's the matter what Come on, Link. What you can do it, Link. Come on, Link. Never mind that guy alone. Look at these guns. smokes all these boards they broke up all the boards against one two of them were break two inch boards i can't believe it collins if you can wade through all this lumber if you want to be on this locker room interview
0: at the top of the show we played a little bit of audio something that Viewers of 50 Estate Wrestling heard each week when they watched Pampero Furpo kicking off the show, and of course, it's that clip that Lanny Poffo has cited as being the specific clip that influenced Randy Macho Man Savage to adopt, ooh yeah, as his expression, much better than I just did right there, by the way. But when Ed Francis and Lord James Weir's came back in the late 70s to promote, once again, the missing link was on TV doing an intro. We heard it from 1968 at the top of the show. Let's hear what it sounded like in 1978. You are watching KGMB. The best- I am happy to welcome back to the super podcast today a friend of the show to continue our look at pampero furpo all the way from tokyo japan fumi saido fumi thanks for being here today
4: hello how are you
0: well we're here to talk about pampero furpo and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. obviously there is a legacy with pampero furpo in japan when did yeah. you first come to japan
4: 1967 1967 yeah it was yeah we have to point out that it was before a lot of wrestlers have multi, you know, multiple tours within the frame of one year. It was, it was an era where American wrestlers would tour maybe twice or three times in lifetime. You know what I'm saying?
0: These are the JWA years, so this is early yeah, on JWA, the history yeah. of Japanese wrestling.
4: Yeah. The only rest, American wrestlers who you know toured multiple times in the in, in one-year frame is, was Dick Byer, Destroyer, and Freddie Blassie. And most wrestlers just came once or twice in in their lifetime, unlike Bruce ofrody or Stan Hansen having ten times you know, ten tours a year for a fifteen year period or something like that you know, or the funks come in six seven times a year you know N- not like that then it was like uh it was always um very special to have new American wrestlers stars uh, c- you know come and do do a serious tour and Puer for. Initial tours, nineteen sixty seven, ninth annual World League tour. You know the tournament Ricky Doza was designing. And this was two years after yeah, uh, wait a minute, nine. No, it was like a four years after Ricky Dozen's passing, but they remain this World League Tour every spring. This you know round robin tournament, not quite round robin tournament because Japanese and Japanese didn't fight against one another. It was American against foreigners, basically basic format. Was you know, and this ninth annual World League Tour you know tournament had people like the Destroyer, Waldo von Erich, Butcher Vachon, Dan Miller, and aged Mike DiBiase. And two more Americans, I don't know who they really are, but the George Harris and Ox Anderson, if that ring, ring your bell. Yeah,
0: George Bunk yeah. Harris. Yeah.
4: Okay, George Harris and Ox Anderson. And Pompeo Felpo was like a fourth from the top, underneath the Destroyer and Waldo Von Eric and Butcher Vachon. But when you hear Waldo Von Eric and Butcher Vachon and Dan Miller, it's like it was, it's all younger brother of somebody famous or something. But you know <laughs> That's what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. yeah. But uh, this was Pumper very first tour. And Mr. Moto from California and Duke Chemical from Florida came in too. That was his uh, very first tour. April to May, one month period.
0: At this period of time, how familiar would the Japanese fans have been? Was there coverage in the magazines? Obviously, it's a reading culture. Was there coverage in the magazines of FERPO in Los Angeles or the AWA?
4: um. Every year when they had this world league you know tournament thing it's the biggest tour of the year and every April these participants from america or oh, they say all over the world you know um very feature you know feature you know featured in magazines so People, wrestling fans would know who they are before, you know, they came in because this drawer, Dick Bayer had six or seven tours before this one, but the case of Waldo Von Erich and Butcher Vashan and Adam Miller and Pompeo Foper, or even aged Mike DiBiase, it was their first tour. So we had to read about it. And I read uh, Pompeo Fomper was fluent in five, five languages. Is that true? And, and uh, he's, a, he's a very intelligent person. In spite the fact that he looked like that, <laughs> you know, the hair and, you know, beard and, uh, you know, I am bending thing and, uh, you know, yeah, all those things. Yeah. Wild guy. How did that yeah. tour go? Um, The winner of this ninth annual World uh, League tour uh, tournament was Giant Barber beating the Destroyer in the final. Yeah.
0: So, obviously, Mike DiBiase, Pampero Furpo, The Destroyer, you have some regulars there from Los Angeles in 67. Okay. Was Mr. Moto the one who booked everyone onto the tour?
4: Yeah, yeah. But uh, having Duke Keomuka, uh, you know, that attending this tour, all through the uh, tour, the, I, I can see the Florida influence on it, too. But these two are cousins, you know? Yeah. This was after, you know, they basically kicked out a uh, great Togo from the booking position and Mr. Moto took over the job and uh, it was more California oriented. Everything was.
0: Did Furpo get over strong in 67? Cause like you said, guys usually didn't get multiple tours and he would come back in 68. How did he Next get over year, on that yeah. first
4: tour? Oh, probably because of this, you know, the wild look and uh, yeah. Um, very unusual, you know, thing. And uh, being on television match was pretty important, I think, you know, because it was still once a week and primetime network channel, of course. But it was, you know, long before cable TV or anything else. And uh, once a week, 8 o'clock, Friday night, people sit home and watch your network television and one hour live tele- you know coverage of professional wrestling. And basically, it's a giant baba time, right? Giant baba hour. And who Baba will be fighting this week. And uh, so he was, uh Pampo Football wasn't exactly the biggest star of this tour, you know. But he did have coverage. Let's put it that way.
0: And he got in the ring with Inoki. Inoki defeated him on that tour.
4: Yeah, Inoki was uh, becoming a star then. Yeah, was already a star. But Baba was clearly number one.
0: And yeah. of all of those guys, Furpo's look really stood out. In terms of the Japanese magazines and the newspaper coverage of wrestling, were a lot of images of Pamparo Furpo in the media at that period of
4: time? <laughs> uh, Tokyo Sports. Because they used to have this Haneda Airport press conference as they are. I think they didn't take different flyer, you different know, flight into Japan. They pretty much met up in Los Angeles and took the same airplane into Japan. So they all come, come in on the same plane and have press conference right at the airport as upon their arrival. Pretty good one, huh? Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so they, they treat it like a big deal, you know, because all these wrestlers, you know, participants from, from all over the world, you know, just coming to Haneda Airport, and they all just getting off the airplane and have, you know, press conference right there. And the next morning, uh, the sports tabloid, the sports paper, Tokyo Sports, Nikkan Sports, and such, they covered that. You know, so it's pretty big, like a sports news back then, bigger than than now.
0: What can you tell me about his next tour, which was the summer of 1968?
4: Yeah. And right, you got the, re- yeah, you did the research. This was really unique too, unique member too. They only had five Americans. You know, it's a summer series called. On um, August to September, one month, you know, series, uh, we, we call it series, it's a tour, uh, summer of 1968, that uh, the guys, you know, Pompilofopo came with, they were very interesting, Um, very crew too. He came in with Haystack Calhoun, he came in with Luke Graham, Mom Mountain Cannon, and the only skinny one was Bob Armstrong. The only skinny one. <laughs> yeah, I guess, you know, the normal looking person. Yeah, Hastack yeah, was a star of the tour. Luke Graham, of course, crazy look, you know, crazy Luke Graham. And Mount Mountain Cannon, another guy who's overall, you know, pretty much, you know, this, this one's from Detroit, right? But he's big, big, you know, fat guy. Yeah. And Pamphier Falper. So they had this certain color, certain characteristic in on this on this tour some summer series so it was like i guess it's a summer summer time that a lot of kids on you know more kids in in the audience than uh, in adult oriented days of wrestling and they. that's my take on this this summer tour needed to have somebody more i don't know the like, kids were like you know
0: and did the kids yeah. like pampero furpo
4: or oh, just, but back then we have to realize, 1968. You know, wrestlers are like viewed pretty far away than somebody you can touch. You know, I mean, today's star, or even the 80s and 90s star. You know, you can come up and almost touch, or you can maybe you can meet them. You know, if you wait long enough at the hotel lobby or something. But the back then, rest, you know, 1960s wrestlers especially American wrestlers are uh, scary, scary people, you know?
0: Did anyone else so, on this tour already come to Japan? Did Haystack's Calhoun not here
4: been yeah, to hey, Japan? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Haystack's Calhoun was here before. Luke Graham wasn't. My Mountain Cannon wasn't. This was Bob Armstrong's first tour, too. So uh, Pompeo Fupa was the only second one. Haystack Calhoun and Pompeo Fopo pretty much headlined the tour.
0: So what does style. it say about Furpo that he did get a second tour so quickly after his first one?
4: Wow, people must have yeah liked him, I guess. Yeah, didn't look at it that way, but uh, right, like I said, peep American superstars didn't have that you know freaking tours, you know, uh, didn't come too often, right? So company must have liked it, or the Mr. Motors thought he had a good, you know, reception or, yeah, very much following, you know, one year later, not even one, one four full year. It's like, well, bring him back next summer or something. This is what they said, right? So, yeah, very interesting. I never thought about it, you know. But this, yeah, crew of Haystack Calhoun and the Crazy Luke Graham and Mount Mountain Cannon, Pumper Fawper. And just a bunch of just unusual looking people, you know.
0: Furpo would return again in 1970.
4: Another real world, yeah, yeah, world's uh, big league series, uh, 12th annual. This had this loaded, loaded members. You got Don Leo, Jonathan, young, you know, young and good Chris Markoff, Tarzan Tyler, and the attraction was the convict, you know, the Stan Fraser. Uh, but the convict character was really, really big. I'll tell you in, in a minute. And they had Dutch Savage, Nelson Royal, Paul Jones, and and, and, and Mr. Moto was, you know, with them too. And Don Jonathan, very serious, you know, like former world heavyweight champion type, you know. And uh, the attraction for kids was actually the convict because they, there was a comic book. You know about wrestling you know and uh he had one chapter on uh, the convict came from Sing, you know the prison and uh, and uh, yeah and the magazine uh put uh, this big picture that uh, he beat boba brazil you know and uh Oh, yeah, that the, the convict had the whole chapter. He appeared on comic book Tiger Mask, too. And also animation Tiger Mask had convict in it, too. And the convict was pretty big, um, to that attraction in this store. Unfortunate for Pumper forpo on this store was, though, he acted as the convict's manager, you know, sort of, more so than uh, headline star, you know.
0: I've seen some of the pictures of them in Japan together. And yeah. He's acting yeah. as the manager, but beyond those yeah. photos, what does that mean? Did he escort him to the ring? Did he do
4: yeah. Yeah. promos with the, the chain Yeah, P- put the chain, in, you know, on his neck and, and, and appalling him, you know? Or convict who's going to walk into a crowd and all that, you know, like uh, start hurting people and all those things. So it's odd enough that the guy looking like for football, crazy looking guy, but kind of short, right? He is pulling the ch- big chain, and he's the only one who can talk to come, you know to calm down, you know to calm down the convict. And he was well, well used as, as a manager, but that took his serious, um, like, competitor's Im-, Im image away from him, sort of. You know what I'm saying?
0: And because yeah. of that, he didn't have a lot of wins on this tour. Looking
4: at no, results. not this tour. Yeah, because uh, Daniel Jonathan, of course, was the the, the headliner of this card. And Chris Markov was the second place winner from the previous year. You know, the year before that, 1969's World Series, the final was Antonio Noki against Chris Markov, Giant Baba against Bobo Brazil, and four guys on, on, on top and on the same point, and Baba and Brazil. Uh, you know, Drew, and so it's like they were eliminated. So the real final match was Inoki against Chris Markov, Inoki won. Twenty-six-year-old, and Inoki won the World Series, uh, World League Series for the first time. That that was a previous year. In 1970, um, Baba has to win again, and now you have people like Daniel Jonathan and Tarzan Tyler, the convict, that Savage, pretty big, and, uh, and Nelson Royal, Paul Jones. They're all good too. And uh, Pumper Fopo pretty much took this managerial role, you know, on the, uh, during the store. So it was kind of unfortunate for him, on you know, this time. But he was already 42, you know.
0: I remember uh, there's an issue of Gong Magazine I have from this year. It's ah, a pretty okay. memorable image. It's just the convict's face. With
4: that right, right, right. Because he was attraction, you know, after this comic book and the animation and Tiger Mask thing. And oh, oh, he was like, I was young enough to really thinking that Convict is going to win this tournament. <laughs> you know, no, not that. But uh, <laughs>
6: um,
4: and also, yeah, I remember that that, that the, the Convict guy would not answer the interview, right? So you have to have Pompeo Fulper sit with him and he will answer all the questions. That was how it was.
0: In the comic book or in the animation, did the convict have someone to speak for him, or was that just for the wrestling? The
4: press, yeah wrestling yeah yeah. But uh, he, uh, Pampir Filippo's image appeared in in the comic book too as a manager. I'm gonna go yeah I can I have all, all the back copy of this co- comic book, <laughs> so yeah I, I gotta dig through that yeah. But I think you know there was an image of him in Japanese comic book. It's kind of good. Yeah, but he appeared in ninth annual World League in summer series, 1970. He appeared in in very you know serious spring World Big League you know tournament thing. So all these tours he appeared is pretty important tours. And it would be ten years before he would return. Ten years, yeah. 1980 in another summer tour, you know July tour. It's summer summer action series. He was probably fifty by then. Yeah. And this 10 years gone by and this, that uh, the the face of superstar wrestlers changed drastically. It was Bruce Brody tour, you know? Bruce Brody was on it. Uh, a little bit aged, but still good. Ernie Ladd was in it. Very young David Von, you know, David San Martino was in it. Dominic De was in it. And then in the brother tag team, Rick Davidson and John Davidson, the long hair, you know, biker type. I think these, these brothers are from Detroit. Yeah. Rick Davidson and John Davidson. Davidson Martino Young and Dominic Tenucci as a probably as a babysitter, I think. But the Bruiser Brody and Ernie Ladd on the store and aged Pompio Fopo had this farewell, like a final tour. I think it's pretty symbolic, you know.
0: Well, tell me a little bit about it, because obviously this is not just 10 years later. This is a different company. This is All Japan Pro Wrestling, Japan, Baba's right, company.
4: Right. Yeah, but it was, Baba is like a direct ancestor of big, you know, JWA, because the, the old JWA company didn't even last one year after Baba left, you know. Jan Baba took Channel 4, Network Channel, and the TV, TV show with him when he left. And J.W.A. could not survive without television. And uh, he did. You know, they were trying to make Seiji Sakaguchi as top guy. And uh, Sakaguchi and Inoki had this you know, secret meeting and he decided to go with Inoki the following spring. And uh, yeah, Old Japan was very um, direct lineage of Old J.W.A. Taeno you know, company. And Baba pretty much took over. And the uh, old, you know, bosses had to leave, sort of like, you know, like Yoshino Sato and those people. Well, that was time for them to go. And uh, Channel 4 and uh, All Jan- Japan pretty much took over the old company. Not just the structure, but uh, pretty much the image of Channel 4 pro wrestling television show. And they had Saturday night, 8 o'clock, one hour show for a long time. But, na- but by 1980, TV show was Saturday afternoon four thirty, in the thirty and Saturday afternoon four thirty. So somewhat it was not as good as eight o'clock, but uh, it was still on on, on network channel. And Bruce Springsteen in nineteen eighty was still pretty young, you know, not that young, but uh, it was like a fourth year in business. And uh, but Baba was already using Bruce Springsteen as a headliner for this company, and I think, of Forpo had influence on Bruiser Brody. Not just the hair and the costume, you know, and stuff, but, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, the mannerism and uh, the and the way he carried himself and the believable, um, like, a craziness, you know, and also the type of veteran that the Bruiser Brody would respect and listen to. The Bruiser Brody had a few teachers, but only a few. People like Fritz von Erich, King Curtis, you know, King Curtis, and Pampere you know, would have been uh, the, 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 another one. You they, know, teamed some, up. they
0: teamed up a couple yeah. times on this tour, or a few times,
4: and actually. Tour, yeah, tour of Japan for a one full month, you know, and then being in the dressing room every night together. People, people was, you know, Bruce brody Ernie Ladd was in the, in the dressing room, and Pompeo in the dressing room. What would they be talking, you know, you know, in the afternoon? So I just imagine that, I wasn't there, but, uh, you know, in a, in a dressing room, but uh, those people would be sitting in the same dressing room for, one, for, for month, night after night after night after night. So they had to be talking, you know. So that was like, you uh, must have had, you know, he must have had this big influence in Bruce Brody's character structuring and, and uh, sort of like attitude building. And uh, developing a uh, believability and uh, how to relate to the world, how to re- relate to the media, especially in Japan, yeah, all those things.
0: How many tours had Bruce Brody already done here
4: in 1980? Up until this point, uh, this was his third tour.
0: Okay, so he's still relatively new.
4: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Baba started using him as as headliner upon his arrival that year before 1979. He came in with Fritz von Erich. And Fritz van Eyck left after one week, and Bruce Brody stayed in the in, in reminder of the tour as a headliner. So Fritz van Eyck must have said, you know, said to Baba, please take care of this guy you know, when I'm gone. It's like, and Baba used him as a headliner ever since. It's really hard, hard in Japan to, you know, to develop a new headliner foreigner.
0: So, Fumi, looking back on these four tours that Pampero yeah. Firpo participated in, three with JWA, one with All Japan.
4: Yeah, 10 years later, yeah.
0: Did the fans remember him? Was he someone who made a memorable impression on the Japanese wrestling fans?
4: More, uh, to be honest with you, more with reading-oriented fans when you go to Japanese wrestling, you know, like a Budokan or, you know, Sumo, Sumo Palace or Koraken Hall, maybe Koraken Hall with you know, 17, you know, a hundred people. They are all hardcores, you know, read everything, watch everything, you know, know everything kind of wrestling fan. But when you go to Budokan or Sumo Palace with 10,000 to 15,000, 16,000, you will have good number of more casual fans, right? Yeah, so uh, Pamper Fopo was a type of wrestler that would be remembered by more reading-oriented fans. You know, this guy speaks five different languages. He's been to different places. He's been to Madison Square Garden. He was America's heavyweight champion in, in, in LA. He was, uh, he had a big feud with Dashik in Detroit. All those things, you know, yeah. It's too bad that he did not have like a one, you know, single title match against people like Jan Baba, you know. But uh, that was how it was, I guess. During this world, you know, world League Tour, like 67 and 70, they did not have single title match or tag team title matches. It's all, you know, tournament matches, you know. So it was how it was done. And, uh, yeah. So, I, but I'm not going to say he wasn't a headliner in Japan. He was the type of wrestler that serious wrestling fan would always remember.
0: I am very happy to welcome to the Super Podcast today a man known by many different names. Some may know him as Dave Drayson, some may know him as Dave Brzezinski, and Dave Brzezinski is on the line right now. Dave, thanks for being here today.
8: Hey, Brian. It's always great to talk to you, my friend. I always say you're number one, even though Jim Cornette says you smell like number two.
0: Well, hey, we could save that for another time, but we're here (laughs) to talk about something else here today, and that is... Pampero Ferpo and the legacy he leaves behind in Detroit with big time wrestling, and there's no one better to talk to than you about big time wrestling and Detroit wrestling, the chic and everything else. So before we get going with anything else, give us a little bit of your background. When did you start watching wrestling in Detroit? I started watching basically around
8: 1961, only because at the time, you know, my family, my parents owned a two-story house in on the east side of Detroit. And at one point in time, the new residents who moved upstairs from us was a family. And come to find out, it was like the most popular wrestler in Detroit at the time, Leaping Larry Shane. So once I found that out, it's like I started watching him on TV. And it's like, holy crap, I got a famous you know, you know, wrestler you know, living upstairs for me. And so I started watching every week. And you know what, I I would always see Larry, you know, and his wife and stuff, and he'd be away on, you know, road trips and things like that. And he took me to my very first wrestling, live wrestling thing. Uh, He, you know, what they used to do in Detroit at the time on Channel 7, they would do a show in the afternoon to promote the show at Kobo at night. And Larry asked my mother, he says, you know, hey, I'm going to the TV thing. You know, you mind if I take Dave along? And it's like, she said, fine. And I'm like, holy crap, this is great. So anyway, I go to the TV studio, you know, for the, you know, live show with Larry. And as soon as we walk in the very front door of the studio, out from like another doorway down the hall, like peeks out Ricky the Crusher Cortez. And it's like, Oh, my God. You know, I'm like a a six, seven-year-old kid at the time, and these guys were behemoths to me. They were, you know, they looked like giants. And I knew Ricky Cortez was uh, Larry Shane's biggest nemesis at the time, and he came out And it's like, I thought they were going to go at it right in the hallway. You know, I was scared to death. And, you know, uh, Ricky saw us and he went back in and I'm like, Oh God, you know, thank you. And the ironic thing about that is like later on. Oh, I'd say "Mm," many years later, like 15 years later, I became Ricky the Crusher Cortez's manager. So that's, you know, and I started, you know, I always watched, that was my first show. And then Larry got killed in a car accident coming back from a show in 1964. And then I went, started going on my own in early 1965, you know, and from 1965 on, I don't think I missed a Kobo show. You know, I was taking my camera, I, you know, started, you know, trading pictures and, you know, have pen pals with, you know, lifelong friends to this day, like Diane Devine and, you know, Tom Burke and Danny Goddard and so many others. And then... You know, I started submitting my photos to all the wrestling magazines, you know, uh, Wrestling Review, Wrestling World, Ring Wrestling, Wrestling Monthly, all of them. And my pictures started appearing in there. Um, I started writing stories because they said, you know, well, you know, if we use your pictures for a story, it's 25 bucks. If you do a story, it's 50 bucks. (laughs) You know, so in like the late 60s, that's a lot of money for a young kid. You know, so, you know, uh, that's what I did until the time I got lucky to become the photographer for big-time wrestling, you know, the Sheik's big-time wrestling. Then I started writing the Body Press program and started doing everything, you know, during the big years, you know, that he had in, like, you know, 72, 73, where every show was a sellout in Detroit here. And it was, like, you know, the greatest time of my life, you know, for wrestling.
0: There's so much Detroit wrestling history to talk to you about, and we're going to definitely do more segments with you here on the 605 Super Podcast in the future. But to hone in on Pampero Furpo, set the stage. What was going on in Detroit? What was big-time wrestling like when Pampero Furpo first arrived?
8: Well, you have to understand that, you know, the Sheik, when he bought the promotion in 1965— I mean, he had, you know, a lot of his friends would come in, you know, guys, you know, that he met along the way in all the different territories. You know, he had uh, Johnny Valentine, who was up in years at that time, you know, Bull Curry. uh, And I say that the Sheik... You know, he, you know, unlike a lot of the other territories that, you know, built their promotions around, you know, skilled wrestlers and, you know, things like, you know, you know, you know, just different territories had that kind of, you know, thing. But what the Sheik did, he built his promotion on all these characters that, you know, he had met you know, over his time, you know, wrestling around the you know, country and the world. And when I say characters, he had everything from cowboys, Indians, Germans, Canadians, Mexicans, girls, midgets. I mean he even brought in like Haystack Calhoun, uh the McGuire twins, so they were the oddities. He always liked masked men, you know, and then you know the other oddity character guys like, you know, Igor and Thunderbolt Patterson and J.B. Psycho. And it's like, you know, when Furpo came in, you know, his character fit right in with big time wrestling with this kind of theme, you know, characters.
0: How familiar were you with Pampero Furpo before you arrived from being so involved in reading the magazines and taking photos and et cetera?
8: That's all I really knew, you know, Furpo, It's like, you know, had respect for him. I, you know, saw him in the magazines, you know, first when he was like out on the West Coast, you know, in San Francisco area. And then he went to the AWA. And then I would see stories from like, you know, my friends, you know, like Jim Melby and George Shire, you know, who were doing stories and, you know, pictures that I would see in the magazines. And it's like, you know, the way they talked him up, you know, here's this like shorter kind of character with his bushy hair and you know short stout build and it's like you know how can he compete against you know guys that are like almost a foot taller than him you know but you know the way they built him up they built him up as like this larger than life character you know from the jungles of Argentina or you know the wild bull of the Pampas and it's like you know oh man when's he coming to Detroit this would be great to have him here so when he finally did come here uh, his first appearance in Detroit was December the 4th, 1971 at Kobo arena. And at the time he was 41 years old. So it's like, you know, I, you know, I think of it now, I didn't think of it then, but you know, you know, like guys like Johnny Valentine and Igor and, uh, oh, uh, well, you know, so many others
0: fifties. Yeah.
8: Yeah. You know, they're like, you know, they really should be past their prime. But you know guys like that, you know you gotta take a like a bull curry, you know, small in stature and stuff, even you know Pampero furpo, smaller in stature, but you know stout and but they were a character, and they made you believe you know that that was their whole thing, and it's like that's what the Sheikh had you know, going for him here. And that's why he was selling out so much. He had these guys who had been around for, you know, a good number of years, and they were a character. And, you know, the fans here, they got to know these characters and love these characters and fear these characters and believe these characters. You know, so, you know, the, like I said, uh, Furpo first appeared December the 4th, 1971, and he went over and he beat Jesse Ortega. And then, you know, didn't see anything of him until two weeks later. uh, He, you know, came back to Kobo two weeks later and he beat Sonny King. And then, knowing what I know now, it's like that's the only shows he did was Detroit Kobo Arena. Uh, He was still finishing up in his AWA shows, you know, for Vern Gagne. But then, you know, I found out that he ended up buying a home in Owasso, Michigan, at the start of 1972. And at that time, uh, his first you know big appearance regular was in Toronto, the day after Christmas, where he beat Mike Lauren. The next day, he came to Detroit and he beat Lord Layton. And then, from you know the start of 1972, he was full time here in Detroit. And mostly he was started off tag teaming really with, you know, in main events, you know, with the Sheik, uh, bull Curry, you know, and all the big heels at the time. And he immediately, you know, after only, you know, a few showings here in Detroit, he made a major impact and the fans, like I said, they bought into his characters and you know, when he would do his promos and he'd be in the ring, you know, you, everybody knows he did the, Oh yeah. And people would, you know, they'd be copying it. You know, I'd be on the streets and, you know, stuff. And you know, wrestling fans, you know, they'd be, you know, walking around town. You know, it's like on a weekday, going, oh yeah. You know, and you know, he was very popular, and he made an impact right off the bat here in Detroit.
0: Couple questions for you coming out of this. One, before his first appearance on December fourth, seventy one. Did any promos from Furpo air on the TV show? And what was the format of the TV show in Detroit at this period of time?
8: Um, at that time, it was studio. Uh, they would film at Channel sixty two, I believe, out of Wald Lake, Michigan. Uh, they would, after the Kobo show on Saturday, they'd go to the studio on Sunday. They would film two weeks worth of matches. And that's where fans, you know, who came in, you know, they would find out what the next big card was because Lord Layton would run down the card and they'd find out who was going to be on the next big Kobo show two weeks later. So it was, you know, probably four or five squash matches after each guy's match. Uh, They'd come out of the ring. Lord Layton would, you know, be in front of the camera with them. Right at the ringside, they'd do their two- or three-minute promo to, you know, promote their upcoming match, you know, uh, at at the next Kobo show. And that's the way the show ran.
0: 71 and 72, what time did it air in Detroit? And what day?
8: Uh, Usually a Thursday night. Uh, I believe it was 8 or 9 o'clock. And sometimes they would repeat that show Saturday morning at eleven o'clock. And yeah, that was the two things. And then you know, especially the eleven o'clock showing on the Saturday of the Kobo show, you know, uh, you know, they hoped that they could promote it, you know, the show enough to fill it up. And starting in like you know seventy-two, once Furpo came in, I mean, people were turned away at Kobo Arena, you know, because almost every show for almost a year and a half, two years, was a sellout.
0: And in a territory with so many different characters, his promos immediately stood out.
8: Oh yeah, you know how couldn't they you know how couldn't they you know uh, you know he'd be in front of the camera, you know the big bushy hair, big eye you know eyes you know looking and his you know big thick accent, and you know the way he would talk, you know it's like you know uh you know it just looked and sounded mean, and you know with his big thick accent like you know
9: you
8: know, and he would you know almost like yell and you know. He'd bring you right in, you know, to his you know promos. And at one point, he, sometimes he would have his fingers, the front of his fingers, painted black because that's when he was doing like the El Garfio uh, almost claw kind of thing. And then there was times that he would bring out Chimu, his little shrunken head, and, you know, he'd be petting, you know, the top of his head. And it's like, you know, holy, you know, it's like, how couldn't people, you know, you know, know, figure, you know, either this guy is crazy nuts or whatever. But what he did, it brought fans in, like I said, selling out all over the territory at the time.
0: If it was nowadays, they would be selling Chimus at every concession stand in the building.
8: Oh, yeah. you know. <laughs> well, it, you know, in late, you know, in the big time wrestling promotion, they came up with these pennants. You know, they had, you know, these diamond pennants and, you know, I, you know, I, I recently saw a Furpo one. They had, you know, everybody, the chic Bobo, Johnny Valentine, bull curry, but it's like, it was after I had already left. And, you know, I wish I would have got some of these, you know, pennants, but yeah. Could you imagine him selling like Chimu dolls or, you know, these big Afro, you know, black hair things, you know, to make them look like Furpo, you know, just everything.
0: You mentioned Toronto earlier, so I want to clarify this because some listeners may not know this. Some people think of Toronto. They may think, oh, Mid-Atlantic Wrestling and then the WWF. But for many years, Toronto was getting their talent from The Sheik and from Detroit. Well,
8: The Sheik and Frank Tunney, uh, you know, they formed a partnership uh, in the, I'd say, the late 60s. And the Sheik would supply, you know, I'd say 50% of the talent. And another 50% of the talent was guys from around Hamilton, Ontario, you know, like the Love Brothers and Chris and John Tolis, Dewey Robertson, uh, Murray Cummings, and even, you know, like some of the old stalwarts that they were, you know, we we always call them tunny guys. You know, Bulldog Lee Henning, who, you know, he looked 80 years old when he was 30, (laughs) you know. (laughs) And, you know, the, you know, So many guys like that, that, you know, uh, they would have on the Toronto shows. And a lot of those guys would come down also and be on the Kobo arena shows.
0: Firpo arrives there. And by early 72, he is established as a regular in the territory. How does he get over? Obviously he's a heel when he comes in. What is his first major program? Uh, his first ones, he was tag teaming, uh, with the
8: Sheik mainly, against, you know, two, you know, always two of the top baby faces and, you know, one of them would always be Bobo Brazil, you know, and it's like, you know, false finishes, and DQs, and just all out massive wars in the ring, and that was his, you know, what he did at the start, and then, you know, he started working singles things, you know, against Bobo, and then Tony Marino, and Ben Justice, and Fred Curry, and, you know, just all the you know, top baby faces and you know FERPA was over. You know, and you know, I, I can't see I can't remember anybody ever pinning him during, you know, a good amount of that, I'll say first two years, 72 through 74. He may have the only way he would have lost back then is through a DQ or a count out or something like that. But the big turning point came in nineteen seventy four where there was a tag team match and I believe it was a cage with the Sheik and Pampero Furpo against Bobo Brazil and Tony Marino. Uh, I could be wrong on the Tony Marino, but I know it was Bobo and somebody else. And rate, right, you know, for the finish, uh, Sheik was gonna throw fire and Furpo was holding somebody in like a you know you know holding them from behind. And I think it was Bobo. And Sheik goes to throw the fire and Bobo ducks and he hits Furpo with the fire. And Furpo goes down, he's blinded, blah, ba, blah, blah, blah. And then that set up the thing for the Sheik versus Pampero Furpo and Furpo's baby face turn.
0: There were some great photos in the body press at that period of time of Firpo with a couple of nurses. It looked almost like a full thing, <laughs> Like he had these giant bandages over his eyes and they were really selling it like they don't know if he'll ever return. His left eye is damaged more than the right eye. Was it a big deal on TV, too? Was it really played up that Furpo may never come
8: back? Oh, yeah, definitely. Well, he
0: didn't come back at
8: first. You know, whenever the Sheik would throw the fire, you know, to, you know, really emphasize the end of a, you know, babyface heel run with him, he'd burn a guy with the fire, and then they'd go away for a month or two. And that happened, my first time I remember that, is in 1972. Johnny Valentine. Sheik blinded Johnny Valentine with, you know, the fire. And then a couple weeks later, with the Sheik's permission, I went out to L.A. to work in the L.A. office for a month because uh, my good friends Don Wilson, Bob Kubik, Larry Korn, and Jeff Walton, you know, they invited me out there. And so I stayed out there for like a month and a half and I helped them out in the office. You know, I set up the ring and ran box office and, you know, did anything, you know, I could to help out the promotion. And then like, especially at the Olympic shows, you know, they ran that themselves. That was, you know, self-running. You know, I was lucky enough to, you know, go down to the ring and, you know, photograph all these things and got to, you know, meet all the boys, you know, like Fred Blassie and John Tolis and things. And it's like, At first, you know, when I came out there, Mike LaBelle let us use one of his houses in Beverly Hills. So we had this gorgeous, huge house that he gave, you know, let us use. And it was like right off of La Cienega Boulevard. And the thing I remember about being in that house at first My very first day there, Don Wilson picks me up at the airport. We go to this house and we pull up and it's like, holy crap, look at this beautiful house. You know, so then we go inside and Don shows me to my room up on the second floor. I walk into this room and it's like navy blue velvet walls. And it had to be 30 by 40 feet long. You know, my bedroom. And they like, holy Jesus. So then, you know, for the heck of it, you know, I'm checking stuff out, put my bag down. And then I go in the bathroom and it's like, you know, a young kid, you know, of my age, I was, let's see, 72, I was uh, 17 years old. I walk into the bathroom and I go, wow, now this is class. There was two toilets. And I'm thinking, well, there's a toilet to poop in and there's a toilet to pee in. Now how much, you know, better can it get? And then it's like, you know, I go to this one toilet that doesn't have a seat on it, so it's like, oh, this is the one I pee in. (laughs) So it's like, well dig this. There's a little foot thing that you press, you know, to flush. So I press that thing and a shot of water come out of there. And it's like, I was soaking wet. It's like, holy <laughs> Jesus. So I go downstairs and say, hey, what's up with this toilet? You know, down on the second floor. And they go, no, that's a bidet. I go, what the hell's a bidet? You know, it's like, you know, and then I sort of found out (laughs) from there on. (laughs) But that's my story on, you know, oh, we had an Olympic-sized pool in the backyard, and all the, you know, shots at that time were pretty short, you know, only, you know, half hour to maybe our longest shot was two, two and a half hours away. So we were home every night, and then, you know, we'd always, you know, be out at the pool and stuff and having a great time. So, Back to, you know, the story, Uh, (laughs) I'm out there shooting, you know, photographs one day and, you know, uh, Johnny Valentine, he's here. And it's like he sees me in the dressing room and it's like, what the hell are you doing here? And this is only like a week and a half after he got burnt by the sheik and he was on his way to Japan. So it's like, well, hey, I'm out here working for the office and stuff. And it's like, you know, I would see guys like that. And same thing with Furpo ferpo gets burnt he sees me out in la and it's like okay you must be going to japan eh ferp it's like oh oh yes baby (laughs) you know so you know and you know you know even guys another story very short quick story on that johnny powers his first trip to japan he gets to la and he doesn't have a passport so there you know our, you know don's wife judy wilson who was also working in the offices at the time had to get you know johnny powers a passport in like 2 days before he left for japan it's like, you know, that's one of those kind of stories. But anyway, um, yeah. And then, you know, Furpo comes back to like, you know, Detroit, you know, and, you know, going to work the program with the chic and oh, they built it up, you know, and you mentioned, you know, the photographs in the body press. Those are all stage pictures that we took. You know, we took those at Furpo's house, you know, <laughs> you know, it's like, hey, oh, Dave, we need pictures for, you know, it's like, you know, oh, okay. So I went up to Owasso and, you know, he got these gals. I don't know who they were. I don't think they were even nurses. And, you know, they put all these bandages on him. I'm taking photographs and, you know, and that's, you know, the stuff that appeared in, you know, the body press.
0: How did he get over as a babyface after a couple of years there as a heel teaming with the top heel, of course, the Sheik who owned the territory. Finally, he turns babyface. Did he instantly get over? Oh yeah! I mean, he
8: was the number one babyface. As soon as he turned, you know the, the you know the fans did a one eighty. Also, boom! I mean, he was the biggest uh babyface in the territory at the time.
0: You know, it's interesting because while he was on top in Detroit, he did work other places. In seventy two, he worked in New York. In seventy four, he was back in Los Angeles. So yep. even though he was on top in Detroit, he was still making shots in other places. And big shots yeah. at that. Yeah.
8: I mean, he was that big and popular and in demand. I mean, you know, you know, even Sheik, same thing. You know, going to Hawaii and doing shots in LA and uh down at Atlanta. At that time at their age and their careers, if they were in demand, oh man, they'd take that big paycheck.
0: He was billed always as the eighth wonder of the world. So what did you think the first time you heard Andre the Giant called the eighth wonder of the world?
8: Uh I didn't think much about it. Uh you know they you know whatever title they wanted to use. But in recent time, it was only a few days ago, uh I'm on Facebook and the news that Furpo had passed uh came down. And on a you know, couple friends, you know, Facebook pages, I had done a tribute video, an eight minute tribute video on Pampero Furpo a few years ago, you know, on a lot of my photographs of him in Detroit. And the title of it is Pampero Furpo, the eighth wonder of the world. And some fan, after I posted it, wrote Pampero Furpo ain't no eighth wonder of the world, Andre the Giant is. And it's like, you know, a couple friends come to my defense and say, well, before Andre the Giant built himself as that, Pompero Firpo did. And it's like, okay, well, you know, this fan, he had to be some young kid. So probably, you know, Randy Macho Man Savage came up with the phrase, oh, yeah, and, you know, you know, I said a couple other things about, you know, other wrestlers who had, you know, did the gorgeous thing. You know, it's like, you know, gorgeous George. Oh, no, gorgeous George. Gorgeous, gorgeous Jimmy Garvin was the first gorgeous guy. And it's like, you know, come on. You, you learn your wrestling history. Firpo had his baby face turn from 1974 through 1977. In 1977, he was, you know, getting up an age, and I know even, you know, when he first came to Detroit, he was always telling guys in the dressing room, don't hit me in the stomach. I think he had some kind of surgery, you know, prior that, you know, uh, because I know the the story that I heard before was Jim Lancaster. Uh, He would tell Jim Lancaster, don't hit me in the stomach. You hit me in the stomach, I die you know so i don't know what operation he had but i know he had stomach problems so i think through 1977 through the start of 1979 and it's when the territory started to go down uh and i know furpo really had a problem when the sheik had his son Eddie Farhad Jr., also known as the Captain, the <laughs> Captain Ed George. <laughs> Furpo right. hated that. You know, first of all, you know, Furpo hated him and he hated that the Sheik was putting him in the ring at that time. So and I know and that happened right about 1977 and Furpo left. He didn't want to be around it. And from 77 through 79, he just left. And then in early 79, mid 79, he came back because the Sheik's, uh, you know, territory was, you know, in in shambles. They couldn't draw nothing at Kobo. Uh, You know, where else was Furpo going to go at the time? You know, so many of the other guys that the Sheik was using then, they were old guys. The fans had seen enough of it. They knew you know their gimmick had you know soured they they knew what they were going to see they were going to see five minute matches and you know the guys that uh you know the sheik had working for him at the time you know all his old friends that were trying to help him save the territory uh they just had nothing left in the tank to give the fans at all
0: in terms of the downfall of the detroit promotion did the economy play into it at all
8: oh yes you know it, it was like a double-edged sword at the time you know uh the economy was starting to hurt uh things were getting bad around the city the car companies were having trouble uh the sports teams you know the the red wings the lions the tight well the lions always suck around here so you ain't got to worry about that the tigers sucked and you know the pistons uh they they weren't much better Uh, All the sports teams around town, they sucked. They couldn't draw fans, you know, and like, you know, wrestling, you know, fans had uh, had enough of, you know, the big time wrestling stuff and just everything suffered around here.
0: And meanwhile, in 72, it was a completely different story. You had FERPO come in there and get over. You had Billy Martin managing the Tigers. That was a great period of time.
8: Yep. Yeah. And the Tigers made the playoffs in 72. They lost to the Oakland A's in the playoffs the American League playoff anyway.
0: And then they fired Billy Martin in the summer of 73, I believe. So it didn't last too much longer yep. there. When it comes to the glory days of Detroit wrestling, what do you see as the height? What is the peak of Detroit wrestling?
8: 1972. The start of 1972 through the end of 1973, early 1974. And that's for big-time wrestling. But also at the time, you have to remember that the Bruiser – Uh, was here with his promotion. You know, he was running opposition to the Sheik. You know, he was drawing, you know, he was drawing decent at first, but then he had the same guys week after week. It was Bruiser and Von Roschke and the Blackjacks and Billy Red Cloud. You know, the only person that was really holding that whole thing together, the Bruiser's name, but the only excitement at those shows was Bobby Heenan even though he was managing and, you know, then he'd get in the ring also, you know, and the fans loved seeing him get his ass beat. So in the beginning, you know, the Bruiser promotion, they did okay, you know, maybe four or 5,000, but toward the end in 1974, they weren't even drawing 2000 to the Olympia. And, you know, that's when, you know, uh, I think Bruiser saw the writing on the wall I don't know the story because, you know, I wasn't, you know, in the wrestling office and I don't know the inner workings, what happened with Sheik and Bruiser, but, you know, they kissed and made up. And, you know, when at the end of, let's say, I think it was October of 74 was the first Dick the Bruiser versus the Sheik and an instant sellout. And they worked the program, I think, for, you know, shows in a row you know, a DQ, you know, counted out of the ring, cage matched a whole shebang. But, you know, and then, you know, Sheik started working, you know, some of the Indianapolis shows for The Bruiser and a few as his other spot show. I think Evanston and oh, a couple other of his Indiana towns. He came back for a few shows in 1979 and 1980. Uh, He worked also, just because, you know, chic shows weren't doing anything good. Uh, During the summer, uh, the Bear Man, Dave McKegney, had his thing going in Canada, mainly Ontario, and he'd go up to Newfoundland and stuff. And I know FERPO worked uh, a handful of shows for him, you know, and I'm sure it was probably for the payoff. And then at the end of 1980, that's when FERPO... You know, had enough, and I think it was in 1981 where he basically retired uh, from in-ring action.
0: So, looking back on these years, the Pampero furpo years in Detroit, what's the legacy he leaves behind, Dave?
8: Oh, he's on the Mount Rushmore, you know, no doubt about it. You know, there's been you know talk online about you know the you know, I say big-time wrestling who's on the Mount Rushmore. Well, okay, Sheik Bobo Brazil. Okay, who's going to fill those next two slots? Okay, you can't only think of, you know, uh, big time, the Sheik's big time wrestling. You have to include, you know, Dick the Bruiser there. Because Bruiser was, you know, big in like the very late 50s, very early 60s when they had shows at the Olympia Stadium for, you know, Jim Barnett uh, was running then. I mean, he was big. I mean, he was holding, you know, the town together. You know, he was wrestling in Detroit at the time. And then it's a toss up. You know, I would almost have to put Firpo as number four, but there's been other people who say, you know, uh, the mighty Igor, you know, ha- has should be up there. And Igor, you know, he came in here in I believe 1968, and he lasted all the way till the end uh, in 1980 with the Sheik. Igor lived in Dearborn, Michigan, so he was, you know, very local. And even after you know Sheik's promotion folded, uh, there was a few guys: uh, Malcolm Monroe ran shows, Ricky Cortez ran shows, and Mike Anthony ran shows. And you know, Igor would be on the ones with Ricky Cortez. I was managing Oh Sheik at the time. Uh, I was managing Malcolm Monroe. I was managing uh, the fabulous Kangaroos, Mickey Doyle and Al, or Mickey Doyle and Al Costello, and then later uh, Mickey Doyle and Al Snow. So you know, Igor would be on those shows, and you know, it, you know, it, it's a toss-up. Those five, you know, I can't see anybody else replacing those five as the you know Mount Rushmore of Detroit professional wrestling.
0: Well, Dave, before we wrap this segment up, obviously you were someone who was around during those years. You were someone backstage during those years. What are your personal thoughts and memories of Pampero Furpo? What kind of guy was he?
8: First and foremost in the ring, you know, one of the most exciting characters I've ever seen in wrestling in my years anywhere, not only in Detroit, but around the world. But the one thing, you know, I would have to say about Pampero personally is that. He was such a nice man. He was always a gentleman you know, whenever he, you know, saw you, it doesn't matter if it was in Detroit or it'd be shows in, you know, Dayton or Toledo or Cincinnati. He always came up to you, shook your hand, asked how you were doing. He was always a gentleman. And, you know, in, in the wrestling world, you know, there's not too many guys. And I, I probably count on one hand and maybe one foot that there's those guys that you never heard a bad word about, you know, uh, and I'd, one of those guys you know good friend louis martinez but i'd also have, have to say i never heard a bad word in the dressing room or anywhere else when it regarded pampero furpo
0: as we look at the life and career of pampero furpo let's spend a few minutes looking at pampero furpo's run in the WWF in 1972 and to do that with us the host a Pro Wrestling Spotlight and Pro Wrestling Spotlight Then and Now. He's your friend and mine, John Arezzi. John, thanks for being here today.
9: Oh, my pleasure, Brian. Uh, certainly a sad situation with Pimpero Forpo, one of the legends, and happy to do this.
0: There are such a great number of heels that came into the territory during the Pedro Morales years. Just so many interesting characters, Don Leo Jonathan, Moondog Main, Fred Blassie, so many guys came in. So many guys main evented against Pedro. What do you remember about when Pampero Furpo first came in? Well, I do
9: remember uh, his first TV appearance and uh, his debut. And he had already been booked for the Garden uh, against Chief J. Strongbow. And uh, he just had a presence. You know, he had that charisma. He had that wild look. He had that voice. He had the hair. He had the beard. He was all hairy. He was... Uh, he was uh, an uh, a presence and uh very very believable
0: if you were a dedicated fan like you were at this period of time how aware would you have been of pampero furpo was it a name and a face that you recognized from the magazines was he new to you how well known was pampero furpo to you when he came to new york oh he's very well known because i read about him in the magazines and
9: uh, you'd always get excited watching wrestling back then and for names that you'd only read about in the national wrestling magazines. And when they would show up, you'd get really excited. And I was really in my infancy uh, of going to live shows at the time in 1972. I'd only been going to the Garden less than a year live. I've been following wrestling for a long time, obviously. But that was a real special time. And I do remember during that time period that, I mean— uh, that I'd always, with my little tape recorder, I'd just be taping, you know, wrestling off the TV. And the uh, first time I heard his voice, it was kind of like, wow. I mean, this guy's great. And uh, he was with the Grand Wizard, and uh, but he was very believable. And you would always, at the time, I wasn't a big Morales fan because I was always a Bruno guy. Uh, you would o- always hope that the villain would come in and, and beat Morales. And uh, that was that's what I was hoping for when Ferkel came in especially.
0: He had the Grand Wizard by his side. The Grand Wizard was a fantastic interview, but Pampero Furpo on his own was a memorable wrestling interview. What do you remember about those interviews? Did they stand out right away? Because you did have so many great heels coming in and out of the territory around this period of time. No, it was just kind
9: of his uh you know the believability and the yelling and the, and the raspy voice and the fact that he was uh built from Argentina and uh and it was just kind of a just a different he was like a jungle man. He was like the wild man of the jungle and and you know you remember him and the first time he opened his mouth and spoke after the wizard uh introduced him, uh it was really memorable. It was great.
0: So did you actually attend the shows in the garden when he came in? Yes,
9: and it was only two shots. I think it was against Strongbow, and he won on a count out, I believe. And 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 for Strongbow to lose at the Garden that was unheard of. Anyway, uh, Strongbow never lost. And uh, and then the next month, it was in May of '72. He had the one shot against Morales. It was out, and then it was done. It was
0: quick. He was working regularly at this period of time in Detroit. And he came into New York and he did these shots. Was it disappointing to you that it was quick? Did you hope that you would have more Pampero Furpo in New York? Absolutely,
9: because uh, he was so great. And uh, he was in and, and he was out. Uh, and in such a quick period of time, it was really literally over a couple months. And uh, I don't know if he, he might have had another shot with Morales in, uh, in either Philly or Boston. Uh, but his, uh, his work in New York was very short, but very memorable.
0: Any other memories or anecdotes about Pampero Furpo?
9: You know, when you talk on a personal level, I mean, we were so enthralled with him and my sister, who's five years younger than me. And at the time in 72, I had to be, I was 15. So my sister was 10. And my mom, uh, Italian mother as she was, uh, would yell and scream at us. And We got so – even my older sister was five years older. I mean, we all just kind of fell in love with Furpo, and we'd run around the house imitating him. And then we started calling my mother Furpo when she started. (laughs) (laughs) And that was actually – it lasted a lot longer than his run in New York because Furpo was so memorable. And my mother didn't know what the hell we were talking about. We'd just be calling her Furpo, constantly calling her Furpo. And we'd be yelling at each other in Furpo's voice, being my sister. So, uh, very memorable. He left a lifelong impression and very fond memories to this day.
0: You just heard my conversation with John Arezzi sharing his memories of Pampero Furpo in the Worldwide Wrestling Federation. Thankfully, John recorded audio off TV of many of the great moments that happened in the early 1970s. Moments that there's no video of. From the best of my knowledge, there's no video in circulation, there's no video in the WWE vaults from this period of time. So, the audio we're about to hear is the only evidence that exists of Pampero Furpo's debut in the WWF. We're going to hear the first promo he did with his manager, the Grand Wizard, and a young Vince McMahon who had just started as commentator. And then we're going to hear some audio of Pampero Furpo's first match on TV on Championship Wrestling. Let's go to this audio right now. I
3: was 16 year professional and when you have a midnight coaching you have to uh, get 200% of what you have. Thank you very much and nice best of luck to you Tim. Also on the card is Pampero Purple represented here to my left, the Grand Wizard of Wrestling. Well Vince, right now I am going to give you and every viewer a treat you have never had let me introduce to you the eighth wonder of the world, Pampero Verbo! And the only reason that yours truly, the Grand Wizard, is here to, for this gentleman, he will not be victimized by the sharpshooters in this area. Therefore, I will be with him. But now you will hear words of wisdom from Pampero Verbo. I came to this part of the country after a long absence to destroy to all my opponents next in line will be the Indian what is he name? a scum yeah I oui, will count him. He has his head back here. Y yeah, a Pedro Morales también de la vista. Purple, represented by, of course, the Grand Wizard of Rustling. In this corner wearing the black tights from Detroit, Michigan, weighing 235 pounds, uh, Tom Reachman. Oh. And opponent making his first appearance in the spring, uh, he calls himself the Gate wonder of the world, uh, from the jungles of South America, Pantero Ferbo. His weight is pounds and his manager, the Green Wizard. Well, there you have it. And I mean this gentleman is a wild bull from Argentina, Pantero Firpo. Federation heavyweight champion, Pedro Morales, a five-star wrestling blockbuster supported by other strong matches in Madison Square Garden this coming Monday night, April 17th. Well, he calls himself the 8th, one of the world, and look at him, you can tell why. Have you ever seen anything like that in your life? There it is, the mission holds tremendous strength. You saw Tom Reesman go flying across the ring when Pampero Burpo literally threw him after Reesman had a handful of hair. 59 seconds. In. Here is the winner in the his debut, Pampero Furpo. a ball from the Argentine. We'll have more action
0: for you on championship wrestling in just a moment. We continue our look at Pampero Ferpo here this week on the 605 Super Podcast with an old friend of the show. Happy to welcome him back today. Jeff Walton, Jeff, thanks for being here.
10: Brian, it's always a pleasure. I love the show, and anything I can do to spread eyes, I'm glad to do
0: it. Well, I don't know about that. You usually have some really good takes because you were so intimately involved with the Los Angeles booking office. And let's talk about that. Let's talk about Pampero Furpo in Los Angeles, in Southern California. To take a step back, do you remember when you first heard about Pampero Furpo?
10: Well, like. Everybody else, uh, you know, in the 70s, you read about uh, in the magazines, in Wrestling Review and Ring Wrestling and Wrestling World and Inside Wrestling, they all had stories about Purple and, and of course, the different places that he worked. And, you know, predominantly it was, I think, in the in the uh, Michigan market and Detroit and, and and then again, of course, in New York, and Madison Square Garden, he worked. There were, I don't think there was a place that he didn't work, really. He was uh, a pretty, uh, pretty good uh, draw.
0: Jeff, the Los Angeles office would rejoin the NWA in 1968, and it's a little over a year before that that the America's title is introduced into Los Angeles. You had the W.W.A. world champion and now you had a secondary title, the America's title. What was the purpose of the America's title? And especially after the office rejoined the NWA, what was the importance of the America's title?
10: Well, you know, I think uh, to a degree we were preparing for the America's title to be our our major championship. It was like the United States heavyweight championship only this title represented uh, north america and south america so you had that flavor in there so i i think that's probably the reason that we were grooming the america's title as you might say as being the number one championship here in southern california
0: pampero ferpa was the first champion he wins a fictitious match against Colasso Colosetti. Did Pampero Furpo instantly get over in Los Angeles? And how memorable were his promos in that era? When you had a lot of really strong talkers on TV, you had Fred Blassie regularly on TV. Did Furpo immediately get over?
10: Yes, and the reason why was because of his talking. Uh, anybody that came across as a as a strong talker on television was very successful here in in Southern California. Uh, the work was something else as far as how they worked and everything. Of course, that was priority. But if you could talk here, you were a big hit. And think about this. Here's a guy that comes on, and he, he's like a bull. His hair is wild. He, even though he's he's short in stature, you don't really recognize that on television if your announcer is not that tall and you had Dick Lane, you had myself, um, this guy came across as a wild bull. And if you did wild interviews with him doing crazy chic like stuff, then the chances of getting over were very, very good.
0: Well, let me ask you about the Sheik, because this plays into the story a little bit later. When did the chic first come to Los Angeles? And again, similar to Pampero Football, although the Sheik didn't really do promos, did the Sheik instantly get over with the Los Angeles fans?
10: Oh yeah, he had a reputation already. Uh, that was around 19. I would say around 1972. In in fact, it might have been a little bit earlier because he's on the uh, Coliseum card uh, in '71. So. He, uh, he he was amazing as far as what he could do, and even his interviews where he didn't really talk at all, but he ran around and he, you know, he would take my glasses or he would cut uh, my tie, and of course, just be a, a complete crazy guy. Uh, and uh, I mean, people wanted to see him get beat, and who who could beat him but uh, Freddie Blassie or? or or, you know any Mil moscas anybody uh they had hopes that would stop this guy and his reputation preceded him
0: a few years after pampero ferpo's america's title reign in 74 he's now a main event star in detroit they're doing major business he has a big baby face turn against the chic and he's brought back to los angeles and he has a pretty nice little run there while also working in Detroit. What was the relationship like between the Detroit office, the Sheik, Ed Farhat, and Mike LaBelle in the Los Angeles office? And what do you remember about Pampero Furpo returning in 1974?
10: Well, the relationship was extremely close because now the Sheik has a a good reputation out here. He came out here on his off weeks. He wasn't uh, headlining Kobo and... He was headlining here at the Olympic and for a while uh, Mike gave him the book so that he could book and he was sending uh, minor league talent out here to work to see if they got over. And he himself was in, in main events. The problem though is our fans, you know, our fans could were really serious about their wrestling. And when you got a chic match, you got maybe 30 seconds, if not two minutes. If you went two minutes with the Sheik, that was way too long. Most of his stuff, the shtick was, you know, entering the ring and uh, leaving the ring and whatever he did outside the ring in between. So the matches didn't last long. But the relationship between Mike and the Sheik was extremely close. And Sheik came in a lot of times with his wife, Joyce, uh, Mike, and his wife Molly went shopping together in Beverly Hills and Rodeo Drive. And the Chic loved to do that. He loved to, he loved Western boots, and so he would go to the one of the finest stores in Beverly Hills, pick out boots uh, almost every time he came. And that was a very close relationship for a while until things. Uh, turned south uh, for the Sheikh years later.
0: And what about Pampero Furpo returning to Los Angeles? Obviously, he's the first champion in 67, 1974, or several years later. Did the fans still remember him how over was he? Now he's a baby face in there and they even brought some of those matches against the Sheikh in the Los Angeles off the strength of the program in Detroit. What do you remember about that?
10: Yeah, exactly. Well, that that's one of the reasons and and Sheikh thought it would be, um, you know, he thought he would be able to, to sell out with Furpo here as well as in Kobo, and they did do some really good uh, uh, cards and matches together, but it wasn't, It I don't think it was the same. I don't remember any of the matches being sellouts. We did very well with them, but uh, again, uh, Furpo came in the second time he was known by a lot of fans but uh, you know i, he, I think furpo was beginning to slow down a little bit as i remember the second time he came in so his work rate wasn't like it was uh, in the late 60s and i don't take anything away from furpo i think part of it of course was the chic but uh, furpo was always um, a good worker he 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 could wrestle any style because he had learned so much in the business, and he was so dedicated to the business that uh, he gave 100% in all his matches.
0: What was the Los Angeles territory like in 74? So this is before Louis Tillette comes in as the booker. The Sheik was the booker during this period of time? Well, no, he
10: he never was really the booker, but he would he would tell Mike what he thought matches should be like. So for a while, Mike was listening to him as far as, uh, you know, what he thought. And, of course, he put himself on top all the time, and like I said, you know, after a while, you know, you 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 knew how the people reacted, and and you know they they would come in and they would say, oh, the the Sheik's on the card; he's the main event, and the thing, the match isn't going to go that long. And they were right because the Sheik never wanted to work that long; he wanted to do his gimmick and get out. You know, Furpo could work. Furpo Fir- could could wrestle anybody for an hour, ninety minutes, whatever. He could work. It was a different uh, type of thing. And I think, uh, you know, uh, we used Furpo here as a, as a baby face as well as a heel. So, you know, we saw both ways with him.
0: How well did you get to know him? Did you have a lot of talks with him? You are working in the office. yeah, I got to know him really, really
10: well. And toward the end of his run, he came up to me after we did interviews one day, and he said, Jeff, he said, let, let me talk to you. I want I want to talk to you. And I said, oh, shit, you know, <laughs> the way he's so serious, you know. He says, I, I've got a problem. I, I, my daughter, my little daughter, she's not well and she needs uh care and and uh um she needs uh, uh health health uh and I said you mean insurance he says, yeah insurance and he says you know I I don't have that in in the wrestling business he says what what do you think I should do well I was startled by this because I I couldn't see. This was such an intelligent man. I, I he spoke seven languages. You know, Portuguese, French, German, uh, English, Italian. Uh, this, this guy Spanish, um, which he got over very well with the Spanish-speaking people. But uh, I, I didn't know what to tell him, and I said, you know, uh, Juan, I said. I'll tell you, I said, if you're really seriously thinking about, he says, I, I'm thinking about getting out of the wrestling business. I I have to get proper care for my daughter. And, you know, I don't think it was only for his daughter. I think it was for himself as well, because he was getting older. And uh, I said, you know, you should look into the uh, civil service field, you know, such as the police department, the postal department, uh, anything with civil service, because you could retire from the civil service department in some sort of position, and you'd have insurance for your family and for yourself. And that's
0: exactly what he did. He would later go to work for the post office. Exactly. Famously, the post office that Dave Meltzer used to mail out the Wrestling Observer <laughs> newsletter.
10: You know, I heard that. I don't know how true that is. Probably is if Dave says so. But uh, uh, that wasn't, you know, that wasn't the issue. You know, he wanted to homestead. He wanted and he wanted to live in an area that was good for his family, and he found that uh, up north in San Jose or around that area was a good area, and, and so I guess he he settled there and then decided, of course, to leave the business and and uh, go into the uh, uh, civil service uh, branch, which he never regretted. He was with the civil service department for over 30 years.
0: Jeff, looking back on the life and career of Pamparo Furpo you called him Juan, so obviously you knew him, even beyond the character and the gimmick. What are you going to best remember about him? How should he be remembered by wrestling fans? Well, you know,
10: other than a quick mention that I've seen that, oh, uh, Pampero Furpo passed away at uh, age 89. He deserves more than that. He he deserves to be accredited by a lot of the serious uh, major uh, wrestling groups that award wrestlers for their work. And uh, also uh, for a lot of things that you know, he he was a, a good man. He was a, you know, he would help others. I know he would. And if you needed anything and he liked you, uh, you got it from him. This was a kind, gentle, knowledgeable human being for being in the wrestling business this man was extremely intelligent he could have gone a lot farther than he did it was just a time when you went from territory to territory to territory and you didn't stay in one place for any length of time he traveled um he knew all the countries he knew about countries he knew if you were going to go on vacation he would tell you exactly what you should see and and where you should go and I think that this he should be remembered as one of the very finest wrestlers that ever put on tights.
0: Well, there it is, a special six oh five super podcast look at the life and career of the legendary Pampero Furpo. I really want to thank all of our guests this week, as well as Bill Atkinson of fifty estate big time wrestling dot com and John Arezzi. A Pro Wrestling Spotlight then and now for contributing audio that otherwise would not have been heard to this program. But until next time, for all of my guests, I'm the great Brian Last. Tally-ho!